Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com, your home to thoughtful conversations on film. I'm your host, Caleb Masters, and today we are going to be exploring the secret life of one Formula One racer, Michael Fassbender. That's right. Today, we're reviewing David Fincher's The Killer. We're going to start with a few little important newsworthy items before jumping into an icebreaker question where we rank our top three David Fincher films, and then we'll jump into a spoiler-free review of The Killer and provide a verdict before we jump into an in-depth spoiler section. Rejoining me today in The Killings, because there's a lot of killings happening this fall in movies, I guess. I mean, I guess killings in movies, there's in titles of movies specifically, <laughs> is my co-host and award-winning Oklahoma filmmaker, Laron Chapman. Laron, welcome back to The Killings. It is early. Thanks for having me. I have my coffee. I'm ready to, to tackle this new Fincher film. You know, there's also Thanksgiving, which I believe was originally titled Thanksgiving based on that movie trailer. So again, more killing, just, oh you know, yeah. <laughs> I'm very thankful. <laughs> so it's a bloody holiday season. Also rejoining us, he's the co-host of the Good Trash Genre cast and Good Trash Media co-founder. And also, when I met him, was one of the biggest David Fincher heads that I know. That's I, true. I, I think that's still true, but we're going to find out today. Dalton Stewart. Dalton, welcome back to the show. Happy to be here, Caleb. Always a pleasure. Well, you know, nihilism. Let's go, right? <laughs> you know, maybe not this time. Ooh. We'll see. We'll see. I love Ooh. it. And last but certainly not least, very excited to be rejoined by the Dead Center Shorts programmer and uh, also the host of OKC's uh, Frightful Film film, and rejoining us from the Barbie podcast, Paris Burris. Paris, welcome back to the show. Hello. I'm excited to talk about movies. Yes. Movies are great. Before we get into today's review conversation, I wanted to quickly note, listeners, that if you are listening to the show and you enjoy the conversation, you uh, can please support us by subscribing and leaving us a rating and review on your preferred podcast app. Seriously, it, w- it would really help us uh, go a long way. You know, I- I'd rather not ha- have to put people on kill lists. And Am I threatening listeners now? <laughs> oh, that's, that's dangerous. Leave us a rating and a review, please. That'll be very helpful. Hey, let's jump into the some very important news items. Hey, guys, this last week, or this a week ago, strikes are over. <laughs> Hollywood, we are back. Films are back up in production. Like, I told Craig, I was like, man, I got McDonald's money now. <laughs> we can eat again. Oh my God. <laughs> so according to the Hollywood Reporter, after 118 days, the Hollywood actor strike has officially concluded. And according to Hollywood Reporter, now we have a better idea of what the members of the SAG after have won in the union's new minimum contract agreement. So I... Uh, Admittedly, the listeners have only read like the bullet points. So here's I'm going to give you the highlights as I understand them. So to account for the inflation, SAG-AFTRA originally demanded an 11% general wage increase for the first year of the contract in July. And then the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers countered with a maximum offer of 5%. They settled on 7% effective immediately with future increases in 2024 and 2025. And they're saying the total package includes more than $1 billion in new wages and benefit uh, plan funding. I don't know the ins and outs of it. I know a lot of this had to do with the pension retirements as mm-hmm. well was a big uh, selling point. They also included a lot of the key concessions related to AI. So SAG-AFTRA also secured what's called consent and compensation guardrails on the use of AI. So under the new contracts rules, a studio must obtain an actor's informed consent before creating or using a digital replica of a performer, whether they're an A-list star or a background actor. Very important for the latter. Crabtree Ireland, uh, who is uh, with the Screen Actors Guild, told the 
I screen actually killed the uh, SAG after Gil, uh, SAG Afra told reporters that AI was one of the most divisive issues in the negotiating room, particularly with regards to generative AI or the creation of an entirely synthetic performer. And then lastly, again, so much more to dive into. As for streaming residuals, the AMPTP had essentially rejected all of the original proposals from SAG Afra and the initial negotiations, but the new contract establishes a streaming participation bonus for the first time, compensating performers in addition to traditional residuals. Other wins include improved relocation benefits, regulations on self-taped auditions, and increased residuals for stunt performers. That's a lot of stuff we threw at you. There's frankly way more to it than I was able to just put out there right now, and I haven't read enough, but I just wanted to acknowledge that, hey, the actors seem like they got at least things, uh, guardrails in place or concessions they needed to have future battles with this strike. So congratulations to SAG-AFTRA for reaching a deal, finally. Yeah. Uh, let's just go around the table. Uh, Laron, you're talking about your McDonald's money. Uh, you are a filmmaker. So, I mean, what, is it, what does this mean for you? What, do you, what, do you, what is your take on this? Uh, well, it, well it, it means that gigs will be coming back. I'm exclusively gig-based in terms of finance, I mean, in terms of paying for bills and eating, you know. So it's nice to know that work will be opening back up here. I was hoping that we would get through the holiday season, you know what I mean, um, with this news. So this is this is great that it's happening before Thanksgiving um, so even if I don't get something this in the next two months, I am hopeful that next year will be fine, you know? And so, um, that's nice. But also just the main thing that I take away from that is the, the consent of the AI thing, I think is the most important thing. Cause I don't think a lot of actors care as much about them taking their likenesses, the fact that they don't have a say in that. That's the part that I think is really necessary. Yeah, which again, for listeners who might not be familiar, there especially especially companies like Netflix and Disney had in their contracts for digital scans that they could use in perpetuity mm-hmm. without consent, which is just crazy. Just kind of crazy and very yeah. violating in yes. a way. I mean, have any of you been inundated with like those ads for like you are you missing out on a 6,400 uh, subsidy, you know, whatever from the government and it's like mm-hmm. and it's like the rock and Oprah are saying it. And then it's like president Biden saying it. And it's like, but it's clearly their voices are, I mean, it's their voice, but it's not their voice. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's a scam, but it's like uh, how many people are clicking on it because of the, you know, the stock footage they're playing of them in different settings, you know, like that's a scary precedent that that whole AI thing I think is setting is, is not being able to trust what you're seeing or hearing, you know. Well, and I don't know the how it resulted, but I know Tom Hanks said there was apparently some sort of uh, ad that was floating around with him for like some sort of dental insurance Ooh. or something like that. I don't I don't know how that ended up, but he was basically had to make a post. If yeah. you see this, I did not I did not say this. I did not consent to this. That's the kind of scary AI future we're heading into when it yeah. comes to the likeness of actors. So, yeah. um, and again, uh, Laurent, you, you hit on something very important here. You are not a member of SAG-AFTRA, I'm however. Not. But I work in fil- but I work on films that are, and so if if they aren't working, I'm not working, you know. Um, so which just shows you that it's a community that comes together, a village that comes together to make a film. So if one part of that village is not available, then none of us get to work. And so by default, I was on strike as well, right. <laughs> you know, if, if that makes sense. So, um, but yeah, but it's really exciting that um, they've gotten essentially the th- the core things that they want, or at least the you know a, a good stepping stone, and that I'll be working soon again. Paris, what's your take on the uh, result of the the conclusion of the strikes? Yeah, I feel really hopeful and I share the same sentiment of, thank goodness this isn't going into the next year. Um, 
I think it's uh, everything I've seen about it, though, it keeps saying tentative. Mm -hmm. And that concerns me a little bit because (laughs) what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Tentative, Right. right? Like, I mean, I'm going to be happy when I hear that it's like official. So I guess I'm still a little worried that that tentative could go the wrong way. But let's just hope that it keeps going um, in the direction it's going. So yeah. I, that's a good point. Uh, again, strike is over, but the membership has not actually voted to ratify that it, all the members have not voted. I think it's just the officers have agreed to a tentative deal mm-hmm. and thus the strikes have stopped. But theoretically, if things fall through, we could be back at this next week. That's a good point. That's true. Yeah. Dalton labor. Hey, <laughs> we love it. Um, the, the streaming thing, you know, you definitely, you, you would like to have seen more news about just straight up residuals on streamers and not just like bonus for, for big premieres or whatever. Um, Cause that's, that's just such a, a huge part of where the acting uh, economy is going. Right. I mean, you used to be able to make your bones off of, you know, a bit part, not even a featured player on a sitcom, but if you know, you had a, a you know, a half a season arc or whatever you were, you were made for a couple of years easy. And that's just not, really in the conversation of of how the, the the industry works right now you know with the the pivot to streaming so i'm i'm with everybody like great news but you you always want more and as you uh, kind of alluded to caleb like there is uh, especially when we right before we sat down we were talking about this there there's the hope that this sets the precedent for future negotiations and and definitely like now that the foot's in the door with you know They've started a conversation about streaming residuals and streaming bonuses, so hopefully that that just continues to to pivot and the, the money starts flowing the direction of the the people making the product and not just towards uh, the people financing it. Hundred mm-hmm. percent, yeah. Uh, again, listeners, I think it was our Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part One, which is now <laughs> just Dead Reckoning, not no longer Part One uh, review, where we did a breakdown <laughs> of you know. I just think it's worth noting that the people who are the, the studios, the, the the top brass that the studios make, oogles of money. Yeah, like yeah. like insane amounts of money. Don't feel bad for them. Right. <laughs> Don't feel bad for them. They're uh, fine. Like one billion dollars is great, but again, and that's if you put that across like five or six CEOs, that's really not. You know what I mean? It's really a drop in the bucket. So there is still more progress that can be made. Sure. Yeah. Um, but I also the sentiment I'm seeing from a lot of actors and to a lesser degree writers is we're just glad to be back to work for sure yeah, yeah. for sure so I'd, uh, like, I'd like to go the, the route of um like zendaya i don't know if you've noticed kind of the things she does she likes to sign on as executive producer on a mm-hmm. lot of projects so that she can inst you know implement a one percent you know stake for everyone in the film and i think that's such a like she did this on malcolm and marie that she did on um netflix and I thought that was great because it was a it's a way to funnel like basically if the movie succeeds we all have a one percent stake in the profit and so if you're like me and you get paid a certain you know hourly wage you know on a film and then you get this bonus of i don't know a hundred thousand dollars because it made 28 28 million say that's that's significant for your kind of you know and if that was implemented in one percent of the profit is not a lot a big is a very small piece of the pie you know you could actually argue for five you know what i mean like but i would take anything other than you know it's it just it's just nice to see that they're kind of seeing like when you have a certain amount of power in that in that in that realm 
there's certain things you can do. And I'd like that to be the future of filmmaking where again, money's funneling to the people crafting the material and not just people who showed up the money. So absolutely. I think that's a really, I did not know about that. That's yeah. a really great workaround. Uh, I mean, again, if you're going to eliminate residuals, the, you have to come up with new ways to funnel the money down again to the performers. So, uh, well, stay tuned, listeners. We'll have more information as the the conclusion of the strikes develop, hopeful conclusion of the strikes develop. With that said, uh, I have to follow up on our last episode, Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, you probably noticed uh, it was almost three hours long. Uh, that's a really long podcast. That's a really long podcast. I think we had a lot of... It was actually longer than that, but you did a really good job. <laughs> we, we added, I, I got it down under three hours. Yes, correct. Um, the There was a lot of things to talk about with that movie. I, I feel like it was very uh, justified. Uh, and also, uh, as of, you know, things were going, sometimes when you realize you're two hours in, you haven't even gotten to spoilers yet, you just got to you gotta cut, you, you got to kill your darling. So we did not get to talk about the film award season prospects of Killers of the Flower Moon. Which, frankly, given that conversation, I think uh, was appropriate. I don't. I think it would have felt weird if we were talking about it in the context uh, that we were holding on that show. So, uh, I wanted to take this time to kick off our expectations for this year's prospects for the Golden Statues, the Oscars, or the Golden Globes? Question mark Any of the awards, the SAG, <laughs> all the award season. It couldn't it doesn't have to be Oscars. Um, but really quick, before we do that, because we're gonna, I think we're gonna start by talking about. Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. Paris and Dalton, very quickly, uh, again, we'll, we'll keep it brief, but like, what were your overall thoughts on Killers of the Flower Moon and what sort of awards season potential do you think it might have? Uh, Paris, I'll start with you. The movie, I was a little middle of the road on it, a little lukewarm overall for many reasons, but I will say that Lily Gladstone, man, she needs an Oscar for that performance. Yeah, like, it, it's, it blew me away and it's amazing. Um, to me, that's definitely the standout. And that's what I've overall heard from most people who've seen it. Like, I think it's a general consensus that we all <laughs> kind of see the, the Oscars potential there. So hopefully she'll get a nom. Hopefully she'll win it. Um, I'm going to be very upset if she doesn't at least get nominated. Oh, Cause I, I mean, I, come on, yeah, like, People will riot. I mean, <laughs> we'll start I mean, the riot on this podcast, <laughs> right? Like I'll be right there with them. So you know, I'm I'm hopeful she'll get a nomination. Um, I'm a little less convinced that she'll actually win it, just based on the history of the Oscars and everything. Yeah. But yeah, I'm I'm glad to see her getting the recognition she deserves for sure. It's amazing. I love that she's pushing for it. If I read correctly, and you guys can correct me if I'm misunderstanding this, she will be the first indigenous American mm -hmm. to be nominated for best lead actress. If she gets nominated, there have been other indigenous people from other countries who have been nominated right. previously, mm -hmm. but not in America. So, yeah. um, that's an important distinction. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, so it would be his, her getting nominated would be historic regardless. Uh, I mean, we'll see how the other contenders play out, but she's definitely got my personal vote. Uh, sure. Though Laurent and I have some more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Out. Yeah. Um, Cause I, um, I think it's like Taika Waititi who has been like nominated before maybe mm -hmm. and s some people of that vein of, but I don't think um, any indigenous person um, from North America at right. least, has ever actually won an award. Wes Studi was given an honorary Oscar, right. but I just think that's important for us to know like the only Oscar won by a Native American is an honorary right. kind of um, retroactive and so it would be a big deal if she were to actually get it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, fingers crossed. We're in her camp. Uh, Dalton, what were your th what was your overall quick overall thoughts on Killers and what's the awards prospects from your perspective? Uh, Megusta, 
Good movie. Yeah, that's a hell of a picture. Um, that that's you know for me it's it's up there with uh, any anything else in like twenty first century Marty's run. Um, you know, I, I, there's a version of of it that's probably more interesting as like a miniseries. As much as I hate to be the fucking uh, executive, uh, the streaming executive in the twenty first century, saying, "But what if it was a ten hour miniseries?" <laughs> um, but yeah, I, there's just a lot of story there, and and you it definitely makes you wonder like what had to be left on the page and could make it to the screen. Um, but I, I like it a lot. Um, it could be an interesting victory lap for Marty. You know, we could see some of that love going on. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, with everybody at the table, would love to see Lily get the, get the nom. Um, that'll be an interesting race, especially with all the stuff they got pulled or moved, um, challengers, especially, mm-hmm. um, just, you know, all the, all the things that it's not competing against now. It definitely seems like the race has kind of been cleared out in front um in, in a good way you know so but it, yeah I'm, I'm with everybody else i'm skeptical that the academy will ever do anything good uh they do occasionally and that's always nice it so, feels like an accident when it happens though yeah it's it's <laughs> it's you know nice to be surprised though but uh yeah i'm i'm very curious what award season holds for us this year i'm always skeptically looking at it and going hmm interesting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um I, you know i have fun with it just because it's it's as close as this this world that we're also interested in gets to uh, a spectator sport, right? You know, other than following the box office numbers, it's it's a word season that gives us something to hoot and holler and argue about in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, it should be fun no matter what. Yeah, I think so. It it, it also just brings. I mean. It's mainstream popularity has certainly declined tremendously over the last two decades, but in terms of like cinephiles, it's like our woo. We all get like yeah. hyped and pumped and get together and even talk the about people it. who are, are adamant that they don't care about awards like still have to, something to say about the nominations usually. So right. it's yeah. like oh, even if you don't care, you clearly have something resembling an opinion about it, uh, yeah. which is you know it's hard not to because they kind of inundate you with the stuff mm-hmm. uh, once the, the the races get going. Yeah, for sure. All right, Laurent. Yeah, I think. Um for me, I think like I, I can see Killers uh, kind of breaking in anywhere from ten to eleven nominations, and I say that like picture, director, uh, adapted screenplay, actress, actor, you know, what cinematography, costume. There's just so many like that on the craft department that we see here. Mm-hmm. I don't see it winning a lot of those awards. You know, it's one of those things. I think it's going to be adorned with nominations, and then it might, you know, what I mean, unfortunately, come up you know, pretty light in terms of actual statues. And I say that, um, I say that because of all of the other movies that are in these particular categories, like, you know, things like production design, you know, like how do you, how do you compare, you know, this and Barbie Mm -hmm. and, and even poor things, which we saw recently, you know, like it's just, it's a competitive year in the crafts department this year, even without Dune here. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, so even Oppenheimer is showing up with costuming. And cinematography, yeah. But one thing I do think is interesting that I haven't considered until recently um, is that this year will be the first year that they actually implement the diversity requirements Ah. for, you know what I mean, like in terms of, you know, like how, what is the ratio of the people of color or, you know, women, all minorities, you know, that were in front of and behind the camera in various tiers. Mm-hmm. And that actually is going, which doesn't fare well for films that are like the presumptive, like front runner Oppenheimer. Right. Mostly white, mostly white, white males. Yeah. Pretty yeah, white yeah. film. And now I don't know who, now this was, this information has been out there for a while. So they had the opportunity to, to like stack, you know, minorities in the 
you know, in the, you know, behind the scenes, like the, the craft departments. But if they didn't do so, you know what I mean? Like, then that's all they have, like, basically. So there's a, there's a universe where something, something like Oppenheimer doesn't get nominated for Best Picture because it doesn't qualify, you know? And that so that's an interesting cool. thing yeah. to add into mm -hmm. the mix here because we hadn't considered that before. I think it would be the kind of unrivaled front runner if it wasn't, um, you know, if that wasn't the case. So, again, I don't know the makeup of his crew. You know what I mean? Like how many people, how many interns did he have of people in those departments? But that weren't, there were people of, you know, of different minority groups. So that's an interesting element into all of this, which might actually fare better for something like Killers of the Flower Moon in Best Picture. So right. I think it actually has a better chance now in that regard, because there was a lot of that, you know, behind the scenes in terms of including the indigenous people in the process. So, you know, that's, that's one thing to consider, you know, looking into it, but. I don't know if it's a fear, but my my gut is telling me that Killers of the Flower Moon could be another The Irishman, mm -hmm. where it's nominated for a crap ton of stuff and doesn't win anything. I could be wrong. I I think Lily Gladstone. I will I will write if she doesn't get a nomination. Yeah, so good. And there's so, so much so love good. behind that, yeah. even from the critics and in, in circle. I, I I don't see a world where that doesn't happen, yeah. but you know. I, here's my, my other take is I think this movie is too bleak for the Academy is going to be kind of harsh. Like I know yeah. that we're the Academy is all about important movies, but at the end of the day, like there's a, can only get so dark before they're, they're like, I mean, that's great, but you know, it's better at la la land. You know what I mean? It's right. Uh, right. And uh, we're going to talk about poor things in a future podcast, but you and I had a sneak peek of that. And that mm. definitely mm. feels like it aligns a lot more with what the Academy tends to mm. appreciate. I don't mm. think you can undersell the importance of how much the Academy likes to pat themselves on the back. Oh yeah. And that's true. boy, will they love to say, mm, after all the shitty Westerns, we gave gold statues back in the day. Isn't it nice of us to give the, uh, the movie about indigenous issues an Oscar aren't, aren't we nice so That's I don't know a fair point they do that you know they they do love to be like and this very historical award goes to you know they mm -hmm. they really love to to trot out their their progress so right. which is you know thumbs up in a lot of ways obviously but there is also like a a PR yeah element yes. to it right definitely yeah. so, a political aspect to for it sure. for sure yeah yeah you mentioned Barbie I think that it's going to be a way bigger splash. A way bigger the, splash than people are thinking, yes. which is good. I mean, I'm, I'm, I think it's an amazing I'm, movie. I'm, yeah. I think that's a, a good nomination. It's a fun film. If it doesn't win best song. I mean, I don't know what the other competitors yeah. are, but best song. I mean, come it's going to win against itself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Prieto's probably, you know, running against himself, himself. for yeah. Barbie and Killers, right? Mm -hmm. So that isn't, definitely isn't make... there like three songs that they could theoretically nominate uh, for Barbie? For, yeah. It's like Dua Lipa, the Billie Eilish song, and then Ken, the Ken, Ken song. Yeah. <laughs> but even, yeah, yeah. In cinematography, we're talking about the same dp uh rodrigo Prieto. Right? yeah he yeah. did both killers of flower moon and barbie yeah. same year and they're both exceptional Look looking good. films yeah. yeah uh i also think i do think the one score thing i think killers has a i mean we'll see what the competition looks like score. i do think score for robbie robertson is yeah. likely yeah. yeah it's unique mm -hmm. yeah and it's i mean he's he passed he passed yeah, yeah. 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 they so love those too they, they love, love mm -hmm. those. they love those posthumous right. oscars yeah but uh, I don't know, Leron. I'm I'm very excited about the Oscar season because it, it does feel like last year it was uh, you know we had um, everything everywhere at once that was like the Cinderella story, yeah, and it was really crazy compelling. But it almost felt by the time we got to the actual Oscars, it was a foregone conclusion that it was going to win all yeah. this stuff. Mm -hmm. Whereas this year, I'm I'm, I'm sitting there I'm like this could be uh, anyone's game. game. Do you guys feel like I know the two of you kind of think about the the awards circuit a lot? 
do you feel like this year will kind of have an asterisk next to it, like the twenty one Oscars did? You know, the the COVID year. Does yeah. do you, because of this being the the big strike year? Do 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 we feel like that's kind of going to be its reputation? I mean, there was a lot of award contenders that got pushed. Yeah, a lot um, of things did get pushed. Yeah, yeah. you know, there's it, it'll be an interesting. I feel like it's gonna. I hope it's not a year like um, God the uh, the Green Book year. Uh, um, in terms of like, yeah. there's there's so many eclectic options because you had like black Klansmen that year you had um what a star is born which is like you know literally every other nomination was better literally than like the favorite everyone. the favorite you know yeah. they, it was like a weird amalgamation of movies that like everyone kind of loved them individually but no one there was just no clear front runners so they went the joe biden route and went safe with group, you, know, you know what i mean like yeah, the fourth, yeah, yeah. everyone's like fourth or fifth maybe choice i the don't old, know the old yeah. super safe so safe it's almost upsetting round. it's yeah. almost upsetting and who the hell cares about that movie who's talking about that movie? nobody like nobody that's nobody. the best picture winner it's very sad <laughs> but yeah uh well so much so much uh paris anything you want to add about uh oscar season this year anything you're looking forward to uh whether it be nominations or ex- expectations or letdowns um i mean i'm really gunning for barbie and like Every aspect. Um, um, Yeah, I mean, I think we're all probably on the same page for most things and what we expect. I don't think it's going to be a big surprise of a year. Like, honestly, I think most of us can kind of, like, see the front runners early on. And, um, I mean, it's just right around the corner anyways. So it's like, what else? I'm, I'm wondering if Priscilla is, like too late in the mm. game mm. but and i haven't yeah. seen it yet but it is sofia coppola you know it's based mm-hmm. on real people which the oscars love mm-hmm. um things like that so i would say maybe priscilla is part of that conversation too um but yeah, i i follows. haven't seen it yet and i yeah. i just don't know if it's like too late in the year because that's iffy you know yeah. but yeah so i think yeah i think we're we're all gunning for the same things here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, Priscilla. Uh, I do think that the campaign for that's been very quiet. Quiet. And, yeah. But it did, to your point, though, we, we did just get the other Elvis movie last year. Right. And so Elvis is still kind of like in the zeitgeist a little bit. Mm-hmm. And this is a, like a very counter. I haven't seen it yet either, but it might, it's, mm-hmm. I understand it's a very minimalist, yeah. quiet exploring the dark side of Elvis and that relationship uh, versus the one yeah. we got last year. Yeah. I think part of the issue too is that we haven't had, because of the strike, we haven't been able to, re- it, what's been hard for us to kind of see what the what the, the big one is in this in this big race is that, you know, they haven't been able to promote these movies. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, so we don't know. Like If you see them like hitting the pavement, then you're like, okay, this is, this is clearly getting a lot of attention. But now that that's opened up, they do got a little bit of, like a little bit of time to kind of like, do a last minute charge for that, you know, for that race with the next, what, three months? Well, John Wick chapter four for best picture. <laughs> well, I, funny you bring that up. I mean, Lionsgate is running a full for your consideration campaign mm-hmm. for it. And they are actively like, why are there not stunt awards? Absolutely. And that's kind of yeah. a big thing that they're pushing for in their for sure. your consideration campaign from what I've heard, yeah. which is it. cool. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't live in a fantasy world where my beloved John Wick picks up a, a production design Oscar, but, uh, but just to be nominated, you know, you know, know that's like another cliche just to be nominated would be an on. honor. But I mean, the, the, the work they do on those movies is really good. Some of the sexiest lighting you've ever seen oh, in your yeah. entire life. Come Absolutely. on. Uh, um, the last thing I'll say is just that I hope I'm hoping that smaller films like 
past lives mm, or um, yeah. all of us strangers coming out pretty soon here. Those kind of movies just don't get lost in the mix because, I mean, I've at least seen past lives and up until recently it was my favorite movie of the year. Um, and so it'd be nice to see that. I mean, beyond that, though, I do think we're looking at Barbie, Killers, Oppenheimer, Poor Things, mm. Anatomy of a Fall, yeah. The Holdovers. I'm seeing it after this podcast. Uh, the Color Purple, Maestro, and possibly the zone of interest you know and i will even say i mean we're getting ready to talk about the killer which has like some of the best sound design mm. of any movie mm. yep. just absolutely mm -hmm. just hands down just amazing sound design so i oh, i would hope that that would be somewhere in the nominations you I, know you know Fincher's got a nod for especially for the technical stuff. I mean, it was the same way with Mank, a movie that I didn't mm -hmm. love as much. Didn't love, but, but, but like, it was like yeah. just it's an impressive work. Yeah, yeah you know. Yeah, oh, man. Yeah, great call out, Paris. I hadn't thought and about the that. score. Trent, oh, Ros yeah. Trent mm -hmm. Reznor and Atticus mm -hmm. Ross. I mean, and the Academy loves to nominate those scores. That, I mean, yeah. which for good reason. Those scores rip. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, you know, it's the Academy has an interesting relationship with Fincher, kind of up and down. So I, I'm curious how the yeah he's been nominated so many times he's never won. Yeah, they so. <laughs> they love to throw him a couple, right? And like I feel like Benjamin is like Mr. Buttons is, is like the first <laughs> Mr. Buttons if you're nasty. That's like the first one where they like really give the movie. You know, it doesn't end up winning a lot but it gets a ton of nominations and and so yeah he kind of is like a made man over there it seems it seems like i get yeah. but I'm, I'm with you on like past lives you hurt my feelings showing up like there's a lot of good grown-ups and talking in rooms movies this year and mm -hmm. you do worry that they're just kind of kind of get swept away by all these these epics and these sort of more yeah. even poor things which is not like quite the epic in terms of runtime that you think of with something like killers, but that seems like a very sort of grand sweeping fantasy tale from what I've seen. So mm -hmm. yeah, there's, there's a lot of personality to kind of unfortunately bury these other kind of smaller sure. movies. Like you sure. said, the quieter movies are going to have a harder time. Yeah. Get, breaking like, out there. Yeah. yeah. I'm understanding it's probably going to be too provocative, but there is uh, American fiction that's coming out there this I keep year. Forgetting that and, one. Uh, yeah. I have yeah. a screener on my calendar for it and I'm really excited to see it. I don't know if you, from right here, it's probably going to be too provocative for the Academy, but what I'm really it, Where did it win? It went at a, at a big festival. Uh, TIFF, it got yeah, like TIFF. the audience award, right? Okay, that was okay, like, the yeah. big thing it got. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is, I, I think that's widely considered a good prognosticator. Mm -hmm. good, mm -hmm. It was directed by Cord Jefferson, who's done some amazing work on television. Mm -hmm. uh, it was yeah. one of the lead writers on the Watchmen series for HBO. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, very curious. A lot of good stuff. I will say, we will. this will be an ongoing conversation for the next couple months on this podcast, but uh, having now seen Poor Things, not to tip our hand, all I will say is, it's going to get the noms. It's going to get the noms. Yeah. Is yeah. it going to win? I'm not sure, but it's going to get the noms. Like every, every aspect of it feels like it's very Yorgos, and that's what I love about it. But it's just very showy with in the right Crafts. in the right way yeah. with all the production. And Emma Stone, God damn. I hate it. I, she I doesn't did, need a second Oscar, but damn it, she's good. She, in it. And she, <laughs> and she like, actually does some really challenging stuff. We're like, no, I don't. I don't want to say that you deserve this more than other people. But yes. I'm still gutting for Lily. But, oh no, but, me too. But it's like. She's just good. At I mean, it's, she does, it's not like she just d turned down another, you know, yeah. okay performance that people love too much. It's like, mm -hmm. no, she actually does some crazy shit. In that she movie. she uh, goes for it. Yeah. I'm like, okay. This totally isn't going to happen. But in a perfect world, Marshawn Lynch would get a best mm. supporting actor mm, for yeah. Bottoms. For bottoms. Yeah. Yeah. Oh I think God, he's amazing yes. in that. He's fantastic, yeah. <laughs> like, it's never going to happen, but I would give him the award. We can dream. <laughs> and this, yes. is a great, this is a great segue into Fincher, because as we talk about, yes, the Academy and how Fincher has not been awarded, I would argue that Fincher doesn't need the Academy to have made a, in a, a 
huge impact on American culture. I think I'm never going to, I'm thinking back about how he did not win. The social network didn't win best picture. And I don't think anyone here's what can anyone else tell me what won that year? The King's speech. The King's speech. But, but. I can't tell you. But, but, no. we, well, we can only tell you that. Sorry, our, we should have teed that up a little bit. Yeah. But. Our brains are broken. Of course we can tell you what won that year. It's, we've had yeah. our coffee. Yeah. But no, but, we're, but but who's talking about it is the question. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the, yeah. And but. also, just one, because I don't want it to get forgotten, is Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Oh, yeah. It has potential. Uh, Rachel McAdams. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. I didn't personally love that movie, but I do think that it has some potential um, acting noms acting there. Noms. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, I just I, I wanted I'd love to throw to that in there because that was McAdams a big one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've had a crush on Rachel McAdams basically my whole life. So, yeah. You too? Yeah. Uh. (laughs) Who hasn't? Bring it back to, yes, we remember that the King's Speech won because this is this podcast. But I'm just saying, like, no one. And I liked the King's Speech. I did too. But, but like, that movie, I, I just think when you watch Social Network at the time, you're like, this is a movie that's really got its fingers on the pulse. It's pretty important. I think maybe it should win. And how many was uh, 13 years later? I watched it again uh, last year and I was like, holy shit, it's, this movie really had the fingers on the pulse and that it understood where we as a culture were going mm-hmm. in a really, really profound way. Uh, and that's not even to mention, I mean, Fight Club 7, all the movies. So, with that said, let's break the ice, baby, and rank our top three David Fincher films. And I'm going to start with the man to my left, Dalton Stewart. What are your top three? Films directed by The Finch Man. Number one with the bullet, Zodiac, a totemic American masterpiece about our fucked up little brains and our obsession with violence and uh, human nastiness. Uh, what a picture. Love that movie. Uh, number two, Gone Girl. Uh, you know, sort of this lurid, trashy, pulpy thriller uh, that's hiding this sort of deeper treatise on relationships between men and women and the white American middle class. Uh, yeah. Wild movie. Uh, and just like maybe the best use of Ben Affleck ever. Yeah. Uh, yep. And, and a, a Rosamund Pike that is so good that it's convinced Hollywood. All she can do is ice queen, even though she's like <laughs> so, so good at everything. Uh, lastly, I, you know, I, I want to give it to something else, but for me, it's fight club. Uh, what am I going to do? Not credit one of the movie between this and, uh, Batman forever. It's like the two movies that are responsible for my sexuality. Uh, so I, I got to give it up for fight club, but you know, if you don't get the Tyler's the bad guy and that Edward Norton's the real Tyler, like, I don't know what to like that. The fucking sad eyes sunken in the back of his head guy. That's what Tyler really looks like. You weirdos. Uh, I don't know. I can't help you if, if you don't understand that movie. Uh, but I, yeah, I think it's, it's so funny. And it feels kind of tired in its Gen X criticisms now because it all feels so obvious. In retrospect. In retrospect. Yeah. But at the same time, I think there's there's so much. It's so funny uh, and such a kind of synthesis of, like, all the things that Fincher is good at. Um, you know, I, I think it's easy to be drawn to his nihilism when you're younger. And for me, that that's what I used to respond to. But the older that I get, the more interested I am in his humor um, and sort of the hidden sincerity that I think is like running through a lot of these movies. Um, so yeah, that's the top three for me. Great choices. Love all three of those. Paris Burris, what are your top three David Fincher movies? My top three, um, at number one, I have to put Gone Girl. Um, I mean, it's just one of my favorite movies of all time, period. Mm. Even beyond being a David Fincher, like it's just 
a really big movie for me. I mean, it's one of those movies that I've shown so many people like, you haven't seen Gone Girl? You have to watch it immediately. (laughs) Um, And just like, I love that like, um, I mean, two of the ones in my top three are uh, the few Finchers that have um, a woman as the lead. Um, I love... I love um, Amy Dunn's character. I love Rosamund Pike's portrayal of her. I love Gillian Flynn's book, Gone Girl. I love that she wrote the screenplay. She's one of my favorite writers. I mean, it's just a 10 out of 10 on all regards. And Ben Affleck. I hate Ben Affleck. (laughs) So for this movie, for this movie to make me feel like no other person could have played that role (laughs) as good as him, I mean, that is amazing because I really just cannot stand him in anything else. So... Um, it, it's just, yeah, it, um, at number two though is a uh, Zodiac, which I think is another 10 out of 10. Um, but really the, the reason, cause I feel like there are like five or six movies of Fincher's that you could put in the top three and I'd be like, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Some of the greatest movies of all time, like, yeah. you know, easy, but for this one to be a close second, it's because, um, it's one of it, it, it's one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. It has the scariest scene I've ever seen, mm-hmm. and no spoilers or anything. But like, you know, it, it's one of the gruesome scenes, mm-hmm. one of many in the movie. And I've never been so scared watching a movie in my life. Like, does it happen? Does it happen in the park? Yes, a murder. There's some stabbing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yes. <laughs> in a very public place. Because everyone right. talks yeah. about the basement scene, which I think is a phenomenal scene. But for me, that scene mm-hmm. was the, like the most scared I've ever been watching a scene. I would say the most scary movie I've ever seen for me personally is Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Okay. But like that is the scene that I think scares me like of anything I've seen. It's so real and raw. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just and just so well done and just yeah. So that's why it gets my number two. And then at three, uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo, because I I, I mean, I'm wearing a fuck you, you fucking fuck shirt right now. Like, I was kind of late to that movie. I didn't see it when it came out because I was a little iffy about it. I just wasn't sure the subject matter if I would like it. But then later when I watched it, I fell in love with it. I've wa- I rewatched it recently. I think Rooney Mara as Elizabeth Sander is amazing. It's just, yeah, it's it's got the goods. It's got the goods. It's got the best goods. Yeah. Oh, man. And, and one day I dream we'll still get a sequel to that movie. From that director with <laughs> Mara. It's not too late. Laurent Chapman, what are your top three picks for David Fincher? So my number one pick, I go back and forth on this, but I think as of lately, the one that spoke to me the most is The Social Network. I just, I feel like, because this is also Fincher, like not not leaning into the um, the ultra violence that is, that's that's there. This is just dealing with the psychology of this, mm. this machine. And, and, you know, as we're going to talk about later in the podcast, his idea of talking about process and, and you know, it, it feels very rooted, you know, for a character like this. And to make... To make this to make this character this real life character that we all know I mean no not personally but you know that we've lived through because we've lived we're you know we were here before Facebook was a thing and make him this figure this big like larger than life figure in the same way um, and it's it just it, it speaks so much to the to the culture and so much to you know um, how he revolutionized the way that we communicate with each other and then he was also not very great at communicating himself and it's just interesting how you know what i mean how he changed how we speak to each other but we also are missing something because of this thing that exists now 
you know, because it keeps us at a distance. It lets us, you know, it gives us that anonymity, you know, lets us say those things that um, we wouldn't say out loud in person, you know. Um, um, but yeah, then my second film, um, Seven, is a, is a big one for me. Um, that's like a dad movie that, that I grew up with. That's something we bonded over. So, um, and I, I've never been more shocked by, by an ending, you know, um, at that age, you know, right. and then Gone Girl is, uh, is a, a solid th third choice for me. That's one of those ones where I didn't read the book. I retroactively read the book and I still love the book, you know? Um, but I just felt like, wow, this movie really gets it. Like it gets that that same moment in the in the book that you go what the fuck you know like mm -hmm. it is the same moment in the movie and they do such a good job at like not showing their hand too early you're invested enough because you have a kind of a unreliable narrator or narrators mm -hmm. you know like and it's just it's just a, it's just again another slick very elegantly made film so yeah Man, I think Paris said it well. You could put basically any of his movies in the top three, and you'd be like, yeah, yeah. And for the most part, you're like, yeah, those are pretty good. At least half his filmography. You're like, yeah, that checks out. Mm -hmm. It's a tough one. Um, you know, here's something I just want to call out. We'll probably get to it more in the podcast. He's a director who's not a writer-director, and mm -hmm. I think this is actually a strength. And so that makes every time they announce who he's working with all the more compelling. And I think, and you know, I don't even know if they, I, I think the, the pairing of David Fincher with Aaron Sorkin on yeah. about the topic of Facebook was lightning in a bottle. Yeah. Lightning in a bottle. I don't know if they could even make, they, they've joked about a sequel. I don't think they could even do it in that way. It's uh, again, I already kind of tilted my hand here. I just think this movie is one where we're still going to look back 20 years and be like, this movie was talking about this thing that was happening to our culture. It was transforming the way we talk and at the root of it is narcissism mm -hmm. at the root of his selfishness at the root of it is a really fickle guy who's upset his girlfriend didn't think he was the coolest shit and the way that that the i think dalton in fact i think it was a fun sentence right i think you you had a letterbox review recently where you said it was bringing the kind of like judgmental like uh ivy league school experience to the masses mm -hmm. and yeah. and i think that's what facebook did it kind of yeah. everyone's trying to one-up each other and how they appear to be mm -hmm. and uh it's had a, a, a very terrible cancerous effect on our I culture get, i get why it's like widely regarded as like yeah. one of the best movies of the 2010s yeah. uh, if not the the century so far i get why people love that movie yeah, yeah. I, it's, it's top five for me mm -hmm. um yeah, I, I do think it rocks. Uh, and I also think it's very funny. I, yeah. I really like Andrew. Uh, that was the big breakout for Andrew Garfield. It was the first time I saw him. And mm -hmm. I said, this guy's really He's good. He's so good. And then ob obviously casting uh, the casting choice um, of... Uh, Eisenberg? I, yeah, Jesse Eisenberg as Mark Zuckerberg. You're just like, wow, couldn't have p picked it better. We, do you know the story behind this? Okay. Uh, so fin Fincher uh, like kept here. I don't know if it was like friends but he kept being told eisenberg is who you should cast and you know obviously he, of course fincher hates being told what to do that's gonna <laughs> make sense when you hear that about him and then they saw his eisenberg's tape and he was like oh fuck i have to cast this guy i guess i have to cast person. this yeah <laughs> yeah it, it could and, not have gotten it better and they even yeah. look similar it's crazy yeah yeah uh that, that is that uh, mark zuckerberg and jesse eisenberg um, I have to go number two, Zodiac. It, it, it that's a master. It's a master. I think it's another masterpiece. It is exploring our obsession with crime, true crime, being scared, um, but also examining what that really looks like underneath the surface. It explores as uh, you, uh, uh, Parrish, you and Dalton have already said obsession um, and, and the cost and the toll that takes on uh, us as individuals. It's just I, I think it's an American classic, bona fide American masterpiece. It's a classic. I love it. Uh, and lastly, I'll go with Fight Club. It's a tough one, though. Gone Girl really is, like, that has to be one of the greatest, like, almost, like, 
cat and mouse games, but cat and mouse where they're like doing it for optics. So mm-hmm. I want to give a shout out because I think that movie is also a masterpiece. The reason Fight Club stuck with me, um, and I enjoyed that movie a lot when I saw it, for all the reasons that you know a teenage, early twenties white male. Would yeah, enjoy look, it. we're part of the problem. We misunderstood yeah. that movie when yeah. we first saw it. Probably, <laughs> absolutely. But but yeah. I, I also don't think we even yeah. There's a lot of us who have wised up. Here's the thing I think is interesting about it though, and and the reason it stuck with me: the humor, the 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 uh, attention to detail, all of it. I love the thing that I, I think now looking back on it is I think it really encapsulates the angst of the white male middle class white male experience that we were feeling at the end of the nineties that has had pretty significantly toxic uh, impacts on the world that we live in today. Hence you have, you know, the proud boys using like the movie as a rallying cry. Uh, You already said it. You guys missed the point of the movie and that's a problem. But also I think that's the thing they identified with the problem in the movie. Not that the movie was critiquing the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's kind of a double-edged sword. On one hand, I think the movie is actually crazy savvy, crazy ahead of his time, very insightful uh, and and incisive. But uh, it's also become very apparent to me, uh, apparent to me over the last like 10 years that, wow, a lot of people don't have, the media literacy skills to know how to like actually think about these movies. So uh, anyway, those are my top three, but they're all good. All good. No one put alien three up there though. I'm surprised. (laughs) I don't think Fincher would even put. (laughs) That's true. Did he disavow himself? He didn't disavow himself, but he's not, he doesn't answer questions about it. Doesn't like to talk about it. Had no participation in the alien quadrilogy like stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. All right. Right. All right, ladies and gentlemen, those are our top three David Fincher films. What are your picks? You can let us know by hitting us up on social media on the Cinematropolis at Facebook, X, Shorts, or Instagram. Uh, or you can just send us an email at the Cinematropolis at gmail.com. Without further ado, let's get into our spoiler-free review of The Killer. I find music a useful distraction. A focused tool keeps the inner voice from wandering. This is what it takes. My process is purely logistical. If I'm effective, because of one simple fact. I don't give a So according to IMDb, the killer is described as after a fateful near miss, an assassin battles his employers and himself on an international manhunt he insists isn't personal. So a couple of fun facts about this movie. The killer arrived on Netflix this past weekend. That is November 10th. Uh, after having a very limited theatrical run run earlier this fall. The film is based on a French comic book of the same name written by Alexis Nolan. I definitely pronounced that incorrectly. It also goes by Mats, uh, with art by Luc Jacobin. I definitely said that wrong. The film stars Michael Fassbender as the titular killer. uh, That also stars Arliss Howard, Charles Parnell, uh, Carrie O'Malley, Sala Baker, and Tilda Swinton as the expert. And the film reunites director David Fincher with composers Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. This is their fifth collaboration together since 2010's The Social Network. 
And this is Fincher's 12th film as a director and second feature film with Netflix following 2020's Mank, though we should call out that he's worked very closely with Netflix on several projects as a producer, including the hit show House of Cards, Mindhunter, and the animated series Death, Love, and Robots. With all that said, LaRon Chapman, we'll start with you. What are your overall thoughts on The Killer? Um, I really enjoyed this. Um, I felt like uh, it grabbed my attention in the first 10, 15 minutes or so. Um, I do not think this is like earth shattering Fincher, you know, but by design, you know, it feels very much like this is Fincher, you know, um, on vacation, enjoying a strong cocktail. You know what I mean? It feels very much like he's just more eased into this, more relaxed. It still has all his signature craft and style, but without kind of the, um, you know, the self-moralizing kind of, you know, tone tone that he normally brings to these kinds of projects. Um, and in many ways, it feels very self-reflective um, of his entire filmography, you know, um, like he's commenting on his own, you know, his own career, you know, his own style. And so I appreciated that. It's a very breezy kind of easily, easily rewatchable um, type of film. So um, and yeah, it was it was just nice to see kind of refreshing to see him have some fun, you know, what right. I mean? um, and not hammering a message or something, you know, so. Definitely a palate cleanser coming off of Mank, which was his, mm-hmm. uh, almost like an homage to his dad uh, using his, uh, his dad's script. And it was definitely more prestige mm-hmm. in nature for them. Mm-hmm. Paris Burris, what did you think of The Killer? I also really enjoyed it. I, yeah, I watched it twice. Like I watched it the November 10th when it came out on Netflix. Um, and then the very next day I watched it again. Um, not only because I wanted, there were some things on the first watch. I was just like, I need to go back and rewatch that. There's so much going on in this movie. And I feel like honestly, after rewatching it, it's one of those movies that could be, I feel like I could rewatch it over and over and Mm -hmm. over again. And it's almost addictive, which I want to get into at some point when we're talking about like pacing and editing. I think that's Mm -hmm. very intentional. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think it makes like my list of like, this is one of my favorite Fincher movies, but even like, I don't want to even say like lower tier. It's just, even though it's not my favorite Fincher, like Fincher, even when he's not like amazing and at his peak is still one of the best filmmakers and making amazing movies. So even if I wasn't like, amazed or blown away by the killer i still really enjoyed it and really appreciate it and it has me thinking so much Mm -hmm. but i agree i think that fincher is having fun which is really nice (laughs) um (laughs) to see because i do think that it is a um a lot of credit he's criticizing and analyzing process and execution um and a lot of that is self-reflective and we can definitely get into that more with like the deeper discussion but i think yeah if 
it, it's very accessible too. So like, yeah. um, even if you've never seen a Fincher before, if this is like, you know, it's just your first foray into Fincher's filmography, I think this would be a great starting point because it is so accessible right. with it being a Netflix movie too. Like that's very intentional. I think, um, that they're trying to appeal to a mass audience. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's definitely worth a watch and a rewatch and another rewatch. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm just so happy that we can sit here and talk about a Fincher film, right. a new Fincher film that like feels like a Fincher film, you right. know? It's really exciting. I mean, cause you gotta think really, uh, he had Gone Girl in 2014 and then he's gone for six years until he comes back with Mank. And again, full credit to Mank. I admire the hell out of that movie. I don't think I ever want to watch it again, but I admire Mank. everything about it. But it, it's just, it's one of those. Yeah, just, this is different. This is actually mm-hmm. fun. Yeah, this <laughs> is way different. It feels like, I mean, there are so many people who are talking about this movie who never even saw me. Right. You know what right. I mean? Right. So they were both on Netflix. Um, I mean, it was uh, during like the height of the pandemic, I think, when yeah. it came out. I don't, you know, so it's just, um, this is more of a return to his like, yeah. bread and butter i think you're i think you're saying well if you're gonna pitch someone who'd never seen david fincher before you, you show don't them start this. with Mank. no no you start with <laughs> you definitely no, start, no, no. <laughs> uh, absolutely don't start with that one you start with the i mean the killer is yeah very accessible uh dalton you were gonna say something uh, i just wanted to read you like my favorite thing for Mank is uh <laughs> arliss howard is louis b mayor uh, do you remember this <laughs> yeah. line? Oh, yeah. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies, and don't let anybody tell you different. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's that's the Finch man on the movies. Oh, I my think. Gosh. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. I, I agree. I, I I just caught up with Mank and and sort of the Fincher prep, and so I'm I'm like kind of it's it's like way towards the back of the ranking for me, but like I'm still kind of swimming in that movie. There's a lot to like about it. Oh yeah, yeah, no, there's yeah. tons to like about it, and and it's so like much. Maybe his most overtly political movie in some ways. Yes, mm, yeah. definitely. Yeah, even like mid tier Fincher is still amazing. Like yeah. it's still like miles ahead of most movies and filmmakers. Like it's still just amazing. So it's meticulous. Yeah. Uh, Dalton Stewart, what did you think of the killer? We're so back, baby. We're so back. <laughs> oh, guys, I fucking love this movie. Yeah, I'm right there with uh, with Paris. I've I've already watched this twice. Um, I, I watched it that Friday night, uh, and then uh, Beck fell asleep during the last stretch of it. So we uh, we yeah, started from the beginning, of course. Well, we rewatched the second half of it, uh, and then I had to. I was like, I got to rewatch this whole thing now. So I've seen it like two and a half times now. <laughs> yes. uh, I I think it's so good. It's this. You know, this top procedural, it's also deeply funny, uh, has the best one-on-one fight scene you'll see all year. And, like, I'm including John Wick 4 in that, which has some spectacular fights. But as far as, like, one-on-one stuff goes, like, it doesn't get any better than this. And then at the same time, so it's, yes, it's this super accessible hitman movie. goes down smooth. It's just a nice, fun genre exercise. But, like, if you give yourself over to what it's doing, you get this, like, surprisingly emotional tale about a really repressed guy uh, who stands in for the way that we all see ourselves as, you know, outsiders set apart from society. Uh, it's like the, the ways in which we're all, we're all the killer, man. That's what I'm going for today. <laughs> uh, and you just get these internal monologues about the job that like represent the lives, the lies we all tell ourselves about our own processes and like the construction, the, the personalities we can construct for ourselves and, 
and move the way we move about the world. Like, yeah, I think there's a lot going on in this movie. I, I like it a lot. I, yeah, we'll get more to it in spoilers, but it is, I, it is extremely notable and deeply funny that he's constantly reciting his philosophy to himself and at almost every corner, whenever he's like the you know rubber meets the road, he does not follow it whatsoever. It's kind of hilarious. Oh, it's very yeah, yeah. It's like the whole movie is like talking out of both sides of its mouth mm -hmm. constantly. It's really funny in that that sort of like dramatic irony sort of way. And like as a movie about process, and you know, Parrish, you've kind of alluded to this already. It's a movie about fucking up a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think we'll, we'll as we start to talk about you know the man's reputation as a perfectionist i think we'll, we'll start to kind of talk more about this movie and sort of maybe the the ways that this film signals perfection is sort of a uh, a fleeting thing to chase mm -hmm. i would say i I'm, i think i'm with everyone at the table here i had a blast with this movie i think it's super fun it's it's lean it's mean it it, it really it's all of Fincher's style that i love um i feel you know i think the material is a lot lighter in its ambitions but that's okay. Not every movie needs to be Zodiac. Not every movie mm -hmm. needs to be Social Network. And and I really, really admire this. Reminds me a lot of Panic Room, frankly, in terms of like how you're just like in it. It's like a ride in mm. a good way. It's a ride that has a lot going on underneath the surface. But that first time, it's just the, it's a thrill. Your adrenaline's constantly pumping. The fight scene. I never, you know, it's crazy. You're just so in it. You're like, oh, he could totally die right now. Like it's a, it's really intense. He's fighting a dude three times his size. It's just, it, man. And Venture just knows what he's doing at every. There's so much confidence instilled in how things are shot. The sound mixing, Parrish, you mentioned was incredible. I love the opening. Yeah, all that's to say, we'll get into the weeds of it. I just think this is the quintessential. If you meet someone who's never seen a Venture movie or they're not familiar or they're like, oh, I've seen like one, you say, well, go watch this. And if yeah. you dig this, then I've got five other movies for you. Uh, but yeah. like, check this out. It's it, the it's the it's the Taylor Swift eras of his career. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's just play, it's like it's just playing the hits of yes. every every part of his yeah of his just career. Gripping the opening sequence, I was in from like like minute two. I was mm -hmm. like, all right, okay, yeah. internal monologue. I see what he's kind of doing, and then, mm -hmm. and then it just doesn't stop until the movie's over. Mm -hmm. It's a great ride. I, it's I, sub two hours? Are you kidding oh, me? I know. It was, I love it. Get out of here. Crazy. <laughs> Coming off of the other movie about the killings of flower moons and such uh it was nice to have a movie that was very short yeah so it, and still accomplished all its goals oh so well yeah so nice well how would you guys compare this to to fincher's other movies i like to think of this as the catnip version we are like the light like i say you, you kind of get all the all the tips and the the the, the isms mm. uh without necessarily having to you know examine the soul of america <laughs> yeah. all in one take uh, uh dalton i'll throw it back to you yeah while i was watching this my friend kirsten um pointed out that this is his most fight clubby movie since 1999 and I, I totally get what they meant by that because this you know it's got this wry sardonic sense of humor that Fincher always has but it's you know being delivered through this first person very subjective point of view and so much like fight club you are just boom you're in it with your narrator uh and you're you're hearing their worldview uh and their perception of reality and it is very much kind of in that mode in some ways um it's funny how how much this feels like that film, despite being. I, I think Andrew Kevin Walker did some uncredited passes on Fight Club. If I remember the story right, I could be wrong on that, but I know he's ever since his big success with Seven. I know he's he's worked uncredited a lot uh, throughout his career. Uh, but the, that the screenplay is just like so silly mm -hmm. uh, in its way, and uh, I, I think it, like 
with much of his filmography, it's got that that humor in it. I mean, that's on my rewatches of his films, you know, over the last couple of months. That's one thing I've really hit on is is just how funny all of them are. Uh, there there really is a an intense sense of humor going through really every single one of his movies, and it is always usually you know very very wry, very dry. Uh, but this one especially, I think, has, has got that going for it. And again, I think it's it's got the, all the process stuff, the procedural stuff of something like Dragon Tattoo or Zodiac. Uh, but then again, it's it has this this sort of you know propulsive first person thing going for it. So yeah, as as some of you have already said, like it's it's doing the Fincher tricks and then sort of taking from other aspects of his films and kind of fusing it together into this this really really effective package. Mm-hmm. Paris, what do you think about in terms of, uh, you know, how, how you compare this to some of his others? Yeah. Um, I definitely see a lot of similarities to a lot of his other movies. Um, I mean, I think there are some staples that you can like expect from a Fincher film. Like you can expect probably a really kick-ass title sequence. You can expect nihilism and like, uh, muted tones throughout like his his movies are very like bleak not only in tone but in look too like mm-hmm. everything's very just neutral and muted and cold um mm-hmm. and so i think it it lends itself to all the things you would hope for and expect in a fincher movie um but strangely like it does something so completely different too in that I think how self-aware it is. Like it's not to say that his other movies weren't, but I think that he has grown throughout his career and like as a person, not just as a director. And like, you can really see that because he is being so self-critical and so self-analytical and self-reflective in this. Um, It's interesting to me because as far as I remember, and I don't I don't think this is a spoiler, but like it's it's broken up into chapters mm-hmm, right. is all I'll say. And I don't off the top of my head, I can't think of any other Fincher movies that do that. Not like this de- deliberately. Not, no. yeah. Right. Overtly, yeah. 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 So this is a very different kind of like pacing and editing style for him even mm-hmm, though the editing sure. is very like it's very i mean just impeccable editing like all of his movies the editing always just blows me away and it mm. still is amazing in this movie um and then you have the trent Reznor and atticus uh atticus ross score which we've seen this is i think the fifth mm-hmm. score that he's done so it's like you're getting all of the things like i think if you're a fincher fan like you are gonna get those things that you're looking forward to but you're getting something just so much different like i can't get into the ending too much in this section but like it's such a different ending than so many of his movies right. it's almost like shocking i um, was so surprised by the end right i was just like the line it goes out on, I was like, oh, that's the movie you were making. Yeah, oh. yeah and like, <laughs> just so, and, and and so when we're talking about like process and execution, that's something I really want to get in. That's very different mm-hmm. too from his other movies mm-hmm. um, because I think that he is taking himself less seriously. Yes. He is not focused so much on being a perfectionist in this movie. He's just having fun and allowing himself to kind of not take himself 
Like when you are a perfectionist, as he's widely been hailed as, in 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 the context of David Fincher, it's usually positive. Mm-hmm. Like right. people praise mm-hmm. him for being a perfectionist, as if that's like a good thing. Unless which, you're Gary Oldman on Take One Hundred and Mank. Right, right. <laughs> so like it's 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 good to recognize his craft. But at the same time, perfectionism is not a good thing. It is not good very for you unhealthy. as a person. Yeah. Like, it's, he has to be very stressed about that, right. you know? Um, yeah. And that has to have a huge impact on how he approaches his work and how he makes mm. movies. So I think, you know, to, to leave it just kind of, like, non-spoilery, I think that he's really easing up on himself here. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very intentional. And I... It's very refreshing. So it's 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 you know it's got all those staples of Fincher Fincherisms, but it's so refreshing to see him just kind of like have fun with it. Right. You know? One of the things that I, I think has been interesting and in sort of what what you've seen in the interviews around this one is how much he sort of like eschews that auteur stuff. He's like, oh no 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 stop, ew gross. But if you ask one of his collaborators something, they'll go, oh well that was David. So yeah. it's like okay buddy. Whatever you say. <laughs> he also does not like being labeled a perfectionist, even yeah. though he's clearly got a very specific vision he's trying to nail yeah. every time. Well, you don't you don't get blocking and camera movement that precise if you don't do it a bunch of times. Like, I don't know what to right. tell you. Right, and I mean, it's yeah. not always enjoyable. Like, he probably doesn't like the fact that he is he yeah. has to be like that. You know what right. I mean? Like, because yeah. I'm, I'm someone, too, who's, I, like, I have, like, jealousy or envy of people who can just kind of like not be in their heads all the time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah what must like, that be You know like? what I mean? Like, yeah. so it's like when I'm sure when people tell him he's a perfectionist, he doesn't take that as like, Oh yes, this is a thing that makes me happy as a person. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Like, no, this tortures me and drives me crazy. He, I guarantee he, he looks you. As a yeah. criticism he, sure. he like, he probably lays in bed at two thirty AM. He's like, Oh man, I don't think the 75th take got that shot the way I wanted it. Well, you know right. I mean? Like he's looking at footage of Zodiac and he is literally determining that Jake Gyllenhaal does not have enough hair on his fingers and that he needs to go in and CGI more hair on his fingers. <laughs> Like, it's a great attention to detail, but how maddening. The one I just right? heard about this morning was, uh, I guess, on the commentary for Gone Girl. He's like, the first thing he says is, oh, yeah, we had to have Rosman and wigs for this movie. And wig technology hasn't come very far in this hundred, past hundred years. So there's just a CGI edit of her wig line and basically every shot of her head. <laughs> yeah. Like, of course. God. Yeah, my God. And it's like, yes, you get a good p- product out of that. But, and I'm not saying that, you know, we we don't benefit, but we benefit more than he does. I think, oh, yeah. No, it's, it's like, not, yes, yeah. you're getting your That's vision true. across. But at what cost? Right. And I think that's really at the heart of the killer. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, and, yeah, because I mean, the whole movie is really self-examination of someone who's obsessed with detail like that. And I, I think you can just sense it. Like it, it's a fun movie. It's super fun. It like it's self-aware, and it doesn't ever take itself too seriously. And I, I think for for those beats to land, you have to have a director who's self-aware enough to know that you know. I'm kind of ridiculous, right? I'm ridiculous. Mm-hmm. This guy's ridiculous. Like, let's just have fun with it. Yeah, you know? yeah. Laurent, uh, what about you? What, what are your like? How would you kind of compare this to some uh, other adventures of their films? Yeah, I, I, this this film is so unserious to me, and I and I, in a in a really refreshing and enjoyable way. Like, it feels very much like this is his first like flat out comedy. You know what I mean? Like a dark comedy. You know, but but still it. It, but though it's interesting is it still has the technical prowess that we come to know yes. with him. Like how lines are delivered in this movie, super precise. Like 
like Tilda Swinton has to say a certain thing, you know, at a certain moment for it to stick the way that he wants it to, you know. Um, and so slip on the ice, like something like 15 times or something every, like that. Yeah. yeah. Like everything just feels so super like, but you, but it, and it, but it also still feels like it's commenting on it because these inner mantras that he's having, like by the 40th time that he says this, the, whatever the, the run, I'm saying them too. And I'm just sitting here like, well, I wonder if he's going to do number four. Right. Cause I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, like I'm thinking about it in my head because the process is also like, just kind of like spiraling in your mm -hmm. own head. Um, but yeah, in terms of comparative, like his other films, like it does feel like, um, this is as close to a, yeah, like you said, like a, like a panic room, but I'd even go further. I'd say it's more like a, like a, the game in a way Okay. in terms of like, yeah. in terms of the playfulness mm -hmm. that is kind of at, you know, in dis in display here. Um, and that, and that's, what's nice about it too. There's a lightness to it. I mean, amongst all the carnage you know what i mean like you're just having a good time i hate to say it's like empty calories but it does feel like you're having an ice cream sundae instead of like the full meal but like you're enjoying it like this is what i need right now yeah you but know not know every day like, that's what i'm saying not every david fincher needs right, to, ha to right. be a, a this is a dinner, this is know? a david fincher dessert you know what i mean like you know like it's it's just it's just sweet it's maybe it's maybe it's not good for you but like you're you don't have any regrets with it. And, I, and i think <laughs> to dalton's point we're back again i we don't want to dismiss mank but it's just nice Having not got had a movie that felt like the Fincher that you've appreciated mm. since 2014, it's like, oh my God, he still yeah. knows how to make that movie. And he showed yeah. us he knows how to make that movie and have fun making it. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Mank is the lima beans or the kale of his career. Like, it's good for you. It's Yeah, it makes sense he made a Hollywood movie. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's at that tier. How do you not make a Hollywood right. movie? But also, like, do we really want that from this guy? I don't, I don't think so. Well, mm -hmm. who wrote the screenplay to... Mank was his dad. His dad. Yeah. So yeah. for Who me never too, worked in movies. It's right. Like, yeah. So for me too, I, um, you know, David Fincher obviously is not going to do a project that he doesn't care about, but mm -hmm. it felt like all of his projects are very specifically picked mm -hmm. and curated to his sensibilities. Um, right. Yeah. And I think Mank was more so somebody else. Something he did with his dad mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. for his dad. For his dad you yeah. know what I mean? So I don't know how. I'm sure he did care care very much about it, but maybe if that it wouldn't have been for that connection, he wouldn't have gone for that project because it's just so different right. than yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's well said. It, my understanding is it was like a tribute to his late father who never had the career in Hollywood that right. he dreamed yeah. of sort of thing, and it's and again it's admirable for that. And you know, it, hey, a lot of uh, valuable history in Hollywood that probably doesn't get discussed enough, but also. I like seeing this guy, this assassin movie, <laughs> where he's just like constantly. You're yeah. right, Laurent. He takes it. The, the killer in the movie takes himself so seriously. It's kind of hilarious. Yeah. It, it's just the from from the first from the first sequence. Like we're like, okay, so this guy is serious. Like he's in it. Like we like we we're we're learning about his process immediately, and then immediately fucks up. And you're like, oh well, he's not even very good at his own job. You know, like. He sounded it's, like he was. So, 20 minutes of it, Laurent. Yeah, no, <laughs> just him doing yoga. Huge, yeah. <laughs> and it's uh, it's all built up, and you can see it. it I got to say, too, the the uh, tension. Again, one other thing we haven't mentioned yet is that David Fincher is just really great at ratcheting up tension. It, all it is is a dude doing yoga <laughs> setting mm. up for an assassination Eating kill. an Egg McMuffin <laughs> without the without the English muffin. Yeah. And, and, uh, and the whole time I'm like, oh, man, what you know it's not going to go how he plans. You just know yeah. that's the, where's the movie. And then you're just waiting for the other uh, you know needle to drop right. or whatever and, and it was amazing it's a great scene and kind of to what what yeah. when paris said you know just about like how 
to at what cost at what sacrifice does like just laboring over and over and over what does it do you know and then if he if you make fincher this character in this movie like you know the the fact that he's laboring over how precise everything has to be and then one thing goes wrong and everything just spirals and it's just kind of like you know, because life isn't perfect. You know what I mean? Like you're gonna make the, you're gonna have flaws in the, in this, and you got to be okay with it. You know, like so, it feels kind of like a comment on that too. Like, you know, again, don't take yourself so seriously. Like mm-hmm. things are gonna go wrong, no matter how yeah. many times you go over it. And we'll get to the ending. It does end in some surprising places. Uh, I have to say, I was I was surprised by how the last, uh, pretty much the last act, of the, everything after Tilda Swinton, we have the all the stuff with Tilda Swinton mm-hmm. takes a different direction than I was expecting, and I really liked it for that. Uh, okay. Let's save the rest of the good stuff for spoilers. Uh, letter grades on the killer. Paris Burris, what letter grade would you give the killer? Um, I think I'm going with a solid B. Very yeah, good. Yeah. I think it's a good B. B's good. Dalton Stewart? This is an A for me. Yeah, th- we're just shy of like of going all the way on this one. Yeah, I <laughs> I think this is, again, like it's just as good as he's ever been. It's it's all the stuff you want from him, and he's giving it to, he's like, yeah, I know what you want, you sick freaks. You want to see this guy shoot somebody. Well, I'm going to give it to you, and you're going to hate it. <laughs> it's going to ruin the whole movie. Uh, yeah, I think this is like way smarter than it, than it, uh, in it, than its uh, trappings would lead you to believe. I think there, there's a lot more going on under the surface. Uh, I'm not even a big Smiths fan. I don't really like the Smiths at all. Oh, you know, maybe it's just because I don't like Morrissey. You know, I I found the Smiths after you know Morrissey revealed himself to be mm-hmm. a shit. So well, it's, it's kind of colored by that. Yeah, nobody introduced the Smiths to me before we learned Morrissey sucked. <laughs> so I, you know, even with that, like, but I think that choice kind of shows you the the hidden heart of this movie. I mean, you you cannot deny those songs are like some of the. True. The great pop love songs of the late 20th century, right? They're all very much about longing, and mm-hmm. I think that kind of shows a, a secret sentimentality to this movie uh, that uh, might be the key to unlocking it. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I like A. Big time. Big a- fan. All right. B.A. LeBron Chapman. Uh, I'm an A- minus on this. Yeah, this is a breezy, fun, like just a good time. Almost, like I said, just kind of like, I don't want to say empty style, because, I mean, I don't want to make it seem like it's like you can't, you know, there's nothing substantive here, but it's you don't have to go into it with that. You know what I mean? You can just have a good time with it. It goes down very smoothly. So, um, but yeah, I'm like Fincher, Fassbender, The Smiths. For me, that's bliss. That's mm-hmm. like that's like yeah. That's the che- the Smiths are the cherry on top for me. I'm like, oh yeah, this is speaking my language. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I, man, you guys have talked to me. If I was gonna go B minus, but I, I think I'll go a solid B because I do think it's super fun. I, I think here's the here's the key. I think you need to set your ex. Okay, for newbies, I think this is a perfect recommend. Venture and gateway adventure. I think for a lot of uh, especially those of us at the table, I have had some other friends of the show who did not like this movie as much as uh, we did, and it's because I think they were expecting a. Mm-hmm. I need Fincher to come out and say something profound, and this is just not really that kind of movie. And that, and in my by my book, that's okay. In fact, I think that was a good choice to make coming off of Mank. This is a great time. It shows that he knows he knows his audience. He knows what people like. He knows himself. Uh, we're going to talk about an interview in the spoiler section that he gave where I, I really sense the growth mm-hmm. as a person, as Paris put it, in the self-awareness there. And, uh, you know, yeah, it's a good time. It's a recipe for fun. And if you don't take it so se- don't take it so seriously. If you take it seriously, I think you're going to miss out mm-hmm. on the, yeah. the greatest joys the pleasure, this movie has to offer. The pleasure offer. this yes. has to offer, yeah. I, I would direct those viewers, though, on their second watch to remember that 
maybe the 10 minute mark, he has a line about how the blood of the many is the mortar that holds together civilization. <laughs> Tell me this movie's not about anything. Okay. <laughs> oh man. I love it. Uh, what other alternate media, media recommendations would we give that could be movies, television, novels, music, video games, or other media? LeBron Chapman. Uh, recent pick. I would, I would say, uh, John wick Four again, exercise and style. Mm-hmm. Um, a lesser known underrated pick, I would say The American with um, George Clooney, um, also an assassin film about isolation and process. Um, and then a, a, a well-known uh, choice being, you know, Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2. I feel like those these films are kind of all big, heavy on style, you know, in process, but also um, kind of have the same uh, playful feel that, you know, that this one does, you know, in terms of genre. So assassin movies aren't they great uh, i mean there's a lot of bad ones but a lot of them are very good too yeah. paris burris what would you recommend to our, our listeners so i have a couple of movie recommendations um i think it is so refreshing to finally see fastbender like in a in in a movie just like he's yeah. been gone for a while so like been too busy racing the racing damn cars, cars. <laughs> Get so, out of Le Mans. Get back in the pictures. Yeah, and you know, I've always been a Fastbender fan, but I think this movie really, like, put him just in a whole other level for me. Um, and so uh, for an amazing Michael Fassbender lead performance, go watch 2011's Shame. Mm, um, yeah. Because, I mean, if you like Fassbender, then that's, like, one of his best roles ever. Um, and it's also just, like, an underrated kind of... We never we never really talk about this movie just in general. Like, yeah. it, you know, um, I think it's worth watching uh, if you like Fassbender. Um, my other recommendation is also another 2011 movie. I don't know why I'm on 2011 today, it's but Drive. Um, I've got because, Drive on my list. Yeah, yeah. I think um, it's... If you like watching just hot men go around <laughs> killing people, People like and they're super stoic and like not unemotional, but very reserved emotions. Like I, th- I think Fassbender's performance in The Killer is very reminiscent mm. of Ryan Gosling's performance in Drive, which is one of my favorite performances just ever. Um, and and it's a very much more serious kind of movie than The Killer. It's not as like funny, but it's. It is very similar in many ways as far as just like the subject matter. Uh-huh. And I, I think the performance is really worth uh, worth seeing kind of the similarities between um, Fassbender and The Killer and Gosling and Drive. Also a very different style, but also a baller soundtrack. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. Uh, Dalton Stewart. I mean, the whole time I was watching this movie, I was like, to me, this is the video game Hitman. Uh, so you got to go check out IO Interactive's Hitman games. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just redid, uh, basically, they just put out three of them where, that were sort of a retooling of the entire franchise. But it's this whole thing, like, it's got the same sort of wry sense of humor uh, these games do, like, very much uh, kind of note for note, the same sort of humor that you get in this movie. Uh, just sort of like the ways in which people are like low key bad and just get allowed to get away with it. And mm. it's every target you have in these games are so comically evil. Uh, and it's, you know, all about process of finding security key codes and, and, you know, putting on a costume and disposing of a body and making a death look like an accident. Like it's, it is all, all the stuff in this movie is in those games and uh, they're so fun. 
Uh, so if, if you're into video games, I would strongly recommend you check those out. Uh, I too had, like I said, had Drive on my list. Uh, Paris is so right, like as far as the sort of low-key love story that's not really about love at all uh but it's because it's not about love because it's about a very reserved and repressed person being in love yeah. uh and again is you know got a great thumping synthy soundtrack uh you know stoic uh but very kind of striking photography and lighting yeah definitely uh fuck luke Besson, obviously but uh <laughs> The Professional is the film that kind of got me into this franchise. I remember that just being on cable all the time when I was like 10 or 11 and uh, falling in love with that movie. Yeah, uh, it's it's such a cool film. Yeah, It's one of my favorites. Yeah, it's a huge, huge place in the gray matter for me. Gary Oldman screaming, everyone, come on, that's a classic. <laughs> uh, so yeah, check out the, the Professional or Leon, depending on, you know, where what the... The, the region is. Uh, and if you're like me, you also need to catch up with Jean-Pierre Melville's Le Samurai uh, from the 60s, which is, again, kind of one of the er texts for this type of, like, uh, lone assassin uh, process movies. Um, Fassbender actually had, I guess, just rewatched Le Samurai and was telling his agent, we need to find something like this when the killer came to him. So very kind of interesting uh, overlap there. So that's that's the, uh, the recommendations for me. What about you, Caleb? Uh, I'm going to go a uh, slightly different direction more with assassin movies, though. Another ma- director known for his obsession with uh, to uh, to detail, uh, Steven Soderbergh's Haywire. Nice. Uh, him also Ooh. having a, a fun time. Fassbender Ooh. also sick fight scene in that mm-hmm. one. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yeah, right? See, that's what I'm saying. There's a lot, again, very different movies, but there's a lot of overlap in terms of, like, the pleasures I got from both of those movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just another un- un- undersea one, certainly more dramatic, but I just an underseen assassin movie that I really like was Joe Wright's Hannah starring Sasha Ronan. Back in twenty, I think that hey, twenty eleven, good year apparently. Good year, yeah. Uh, just really cool uh, use of style, uh, use of chapters is also a big mm. part of that story. And no one, I think people talked about it for a hot minute in twenty eleven, but I, I don't. It doesn't come up very yeah, often. Yeah, there's an Amazon series mm-hmm. adaptation, and everything. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Hey, you know what else came out in twenty eleven? Drive girl with the dragon tattoo and the girl with the dragon. Yeah, tattoo. yeah. Uh, it was what? Drive twenty ten. No, uh, Drive's twenty eleven. Yeah, Paris had that right. Twenty eleven was cooking. That's right. Yeah, so, so Paris, oh, yeah. twenty eleven. The theme is that was a great year for assassin <laughs> movies in general. But, uh, <laughs> Uh, lastly, another. I'm just I'm just calling out movies that are even tangentially related to assassins that I think people should go see. Drew Goddard's unsung 2018 film Bad Times at the El Royale. Mm. Uh, very very different film. It's really I wouldn't even call it an assassination film per se. More like there's an assassin with there's a an assassin, but a lot of uh, mystery surrounding who's assassinating who and what's going wrong. But a uh, uh, really great use of uh, great score. Great style, uh, throwback kind of like style that pulk, mid-century mm-hmm. sort of architecture and you oh, know, yeah. interior design. Yeah, the movie that, that's a corker. That's yeah. a great movie that like nobody saw. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. So, so highly recommend that. Um, all right. Well, with that said, let's go ahead and move to our spoiler discussion for the killer. So, if you don't want to be spoiled on the killer, go ahead and tune out now. Put the gun down. I saw you with the box. What was in the box? Because I envy your normal life. Put the gun down, David. It seems that envy is my son. No, what's in the box? Not taking, give me the what's gun. in the fucking box? Give me the gun. All right. So I'm going to say it now because the spoiler section. So uh, put it out there. The word competence porn. I just like, I, firstly, I think it's such a great way to describe <laughs> this movie. Uh, but David Fincher in, in a lot of movies. But like, it's the, the idea of 
just watching a person be highly, highly, highly skilled at doing a, at, at uh, executing a process and just watching how that works. So I think of it like, uh, you know, the Ocean's Eleven heist movies. Part of what makes those movies super fun is, yeah, really the, the build up to the process is kind of interesting. But when you see how that how they execute it, you're just like fascinated. It's mesmerizing. So David Fincher being the dedicated craftsman that he is. Again, we've already talked about with the reputation of as a perfectionist, known for doing dozens of takes. And I made the joke uh, on the scene on, on the set of Mank. Apparently, they filmed the big dinner sequence over a hundred times, in which Gary Oldman said, "I've already done it over a hundred effing times." Mm -hmm. And Fincher said, "And we're going to do it the hundred and first time." Right? <laughs> you know. Um, so I want to dig into what. What's the, the read here? How does the killer's attention to meticulous details of an assassin really lend itself to Fincher's obsession as a filmmaker? And Paris, I'll start with you. Yeah, so I think it's absolutely essential in this movie um, because that's exactly what it's kind of about. Like, I mean, it's about a lot of things. A lot of things are going on. But for me... um. It's, it's really like he is um, making the argument, one of many arguments I think this movie is making, that it's not all about execution. It's not all about perfection. It's not all about because there's more to craft than that. Mm -hmm. um, so really what I took away from it initially and it kind of solidified on my rewatch is this is a movie about people making mistakes and what happens to those people when they make those mistakes, who gets off, who gets punished and who does it affect? Um, because um, a lot of it too is what it, it, he's raising the question of, you know, it's not like he necessarily says at any point in the movie, I'm an outsider. I'm so different than everyone else. But like he's he's through his internal monologue and his internal, you know, dialogue with himself. He's making it very clear that he doesn't fit in. He he's he's saying if, if you can't handle boredom, then you can't do this job. Mm -hmm. And he's saying by way of saying that I can handle it because mm -hmm. I'm I'm mm -hmm. that person, you know. So like. But what it ultimately asks, though, is how is he any different than mm -hmm. any of these people? Mm -hmm. How is he any different? than Tilda Swinton's character. He would have done the same dang thing. And he resents that her life is more normal than his. Right. right. Yeah. He absolutely would have made the same choices. And I mean, you know what I mean? He's done the same things. He's done worse. He he reminisces about drowning people. Mm -hmm. Like, um, <laughs> and then Tilda Swinton has that whole monologue about... Um, the I think it's a bear or... Yeah, the yeah, bear. And it's like... It, are you really out here because that's what you're doing or is there something else in it for you? Right. And he's constantly asking, he tells in his mantra, what's in it for me? Ask yourself that every step of the way. Right. Um, and I don't think he has the answer to that question. Uh, he doesn't know what's in it for him. He's not yeah. benefiting from any of this. Yeah, Yet Tilda Swinton's over there eating gourmet dessert. 
enjoying the hell out of her life. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't seem to be as haunted by all of this that he is very clearly haunted by. Even the lawyer says, you've got more money than you could spend in your lifetime. Why are you still doing this thing? Right. So, So I really think... I love Tilda's character and her performance. I would love to see her get a, a best supporting nom. Oh, oh my gosh, awesome. that would be amazing because I think she accomplishes so much in the limited screen time she's given. But it's really a, as a juxtaposition for his character. Like, that's me sitting across the table. Mm-hmm. She's an assassin. I'm an assassin. It's just I got to her first. And then really at the end, you know, it's, you know, brought back with him kind of He's he's got his uh wherever he is on on this uh luxurious location with this luxurious f- plate of food or whatever and now he's basking in the sun enjoying his life but when is the person going to come to get him mm-hmm. you know um so I really anyways just I think the meticulousness of all of that is being examined in a way of like is it really that valuable? Mm-hmm. Is it really that important? Because when you're watching the movie, like there's a moment too where he is, I mean, what is he doing at the very beginning? He's trying to get the perfect shot. Mm-hmm. Like right. that's literally yeah. his, yeah. <laughs> and when he's setting up his gun, it immediately, I was like, oh, that's like a camera. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. he's setting up his camera. He's trying to get Ooh. the perfect shot. And then, so it's it's really the heart of this movie is I don't think it's like praising craft or execution or process. I think it's just examining it and being like mm-hmm. by way of showing us that there's more to this character than just his abilities. He's saying there's more to people right. than just what you see and how they serve you. Yeah, so that's just like my long-winded way of saying the meticulousness is the is the, the part. Point. Yeah, it's yeah. the point. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'd 100 agree, and I, I like that you add the the layer there, thinking about um, how he's so focused. There's more to people. He he's his process is very meticulous, but notice he doesn't fault. There are several key moments where he he's made judgy statements, but then himself, when he gets caught in a situation that he's not prepared for, reacts exactly how other people would react mm. and totally abandons the philosophy in that moment. But then when he snaps back to the, uh, when he feels like he's in control, right back to the philosophy. And again, how many of us live our lives that way? We have a very, we, this is how I live. This is how I live. Something bad happens. And then all of a sudden, all that's out the window. And then you revert back after when you re- regain control. And I think the same is, well, I mean, I don't know. You guys are filmmakers. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm likely a similar feeling when you're, I am a perfectionist and it is a problem, (laughs) you know, so yes. Yeah, I, not to like go on and on again, but like just, I think a lot of that beginning sequence, which I think is just the most beautiful sequence in the whole movie, it's about how it's cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. There's a version of yourself in your mind and then there's the actual you. Right. And I think in his mind, he is someone who is very concerned with the things that he is telling himself he's concerned with but at the same time he's saying i don't give a fuck so i don't think he actually (laughs) cares he wants to be the person who cares right yeah yeah Yeah. well said dalton what's your take on the meticulousness of the uh the film you know i 
I think even at this point in his career, he, Fincher seems like somebody who identifies himself as a mercenary more than an artist, right? He's he's a gun for hire. He's still the the dude who made the smoking 2001 baby for the American Cancer Society. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's still that dude. And at the same time, he's the one who brings Evan, Andrew Kevin Walker this the story and has like the whole movie laid out and says, hey, let's make the screenplay for me. Like, let's let's make this movie. So it's I, I think it's very interesting. I, you know, I, we're going to keep insisting that the killer is sort of a, a Fincher stand in. And it's it's hard not to, I think, as much as he's probably going to insist that, no, 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 that's definitely not me. I, I think even if that is how he truly feels, whether that's, you know, we, we can never know if that's a put on uh, just, you know, and that's kind of the point of the movie. You don't know what's put on for people and you don't know what isn't. Um, and I think Paris is so right to identify the heart of the movie being uh, the scene with Tilda Swinton and then the, the epilogue back in the Dominican Republic. I think those two beats really are the heart of the film and kind of lay it all out because it's, it's in those conversations with well, not even a conversation. It's in listening to Tilda that the killer comes the closest to breaking and maybe giving up a little bit more of himself and, you know, maybe having a drink with her and maybe sharing some of how he feels. And obviously he doesn't, but it's, it's that seeing somebody who's living an even more normal life than he is outside of the, the job uh, that, you know, gives him this prop that we can kind of infer, like gives him this sense of jealousy. Maybe obviously he's going to kill her no matter what, because he's trying to leave no loose ends for this, this revenge rampage that he's on. Uh, but I definitely think there's there's even there's that note of seeing somebody who also fucked up and not have you know she she has that line about you thought you'd sit across from me and feel nothing but reassured mm-hmm. and not, he doesn't that's not how he feels about this he doesn't feel good about this and you know it's it's going to Claiborne and it's very funny that the only named character in this movie is the billionaire. Uh, and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't finish off the revenge where at the end of the trail, right? Because he realizes this guy's is just a bunch of a functionary as he is, uh, and it's going home and being back at home that he he you know he, he the monologue gets the most honest there in that final epilogue where he's like, no, fate fate is a placebo. We we are just all of the decisions that are behind us, and if you can't handle that. Maybe you're not one of the few. Maybe you're just like me, one of the many. And is that mm-hmm. finally that admission of no, I am not one of the few. I'm I'm one of the idiots. I'm the blood that is the mortar that holds society together. And I, I think that's Fincher being like, yeah, you know, I'm never going to make an impact on the 7.8 billion people that exist. Like, there's too much content. I'm not a re- I'm not the guy anymore, uh, because that's not how this industry is set up anymore. So again, I think there's all these kind of fun parallels between, you know, artist and assassin uh, process and, and filmmaking. Uh, and, and again, like perfectionism as a, you know, a burden and not as something mm-hmm. to be celebrated. Uh, so, yeah, I think there's all kinds of fun stuff going on in there. And again, it's as Paris said, like the movie starts with him, like the inciting incident is him failing to get the perfect shot. Right. So it's all right there. Yeah, I love it. Laurent, anything you want to add about uh, you know, this film's uh, attention to meticulous details? Well, I'm playing with that that same line. It's just it. I think his meticulousness in this film just basically is this whole film is just him essentially, you know, being self aware of his own flaws. You know what I mean? And I think that that's the beauty of it because you think you think this is a story about him wanting to be one of the few. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. but it's just it's it's his also admission to the fact that yes, I am a perfectionist, and as you said, it is a burden. Um, but he even says in an interview that we're going to talk about later, you know, that it is kind of like a, 
you know, it's something he, he doesn't know how else to be, you know, like this is, this is how I know to do the thing, you know, but I am aware as all of you have, 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 you know, said about me that, yes, this is a, this is something that I'm, I'm very meticulous about doing, but I love that he's able to do that with a self-critical eye, but also with a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, yeah, I get it, but we can laugh at this a little bit like, right. You know, so he's not, he's not as pretentious as some people might think he is. He's actually able well, to the, talk the, about himself. How know? self-serious Fassbender is in the movie is where the, I, I feel like a lot of the humor comes from. And that, mm -hmm. and that is, I think Fincher leaning into, Oh, we're going to make this overly serious only. So when, you know, he, f he screws up, screws up. It's hilarious. It's just like, and it's well, all for not all it's this like, for well, the, you, you're, you're so out of touch with the, the world that you're living in. So all that, great. all that process, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. all that detail, all this, all this training, just to fuck up anyway, like everyone else. He's thinking to himself, only fight the battles you're paid to fight as he gets tackled by a 300-pound dude who what he doesn't fuck? have to fight. <laughs> exactly. Choosing to go fight. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't have much more to add to it, uh, you know, other than I just think uh, it, it's it's good to see what Fincher's doing here, and I'm interested to see what he does next, which we'll talk about here more in a minute. But seeing this sort of, like, self-awareness, I think at this point in his career, I mean, he's only in his 60s, so he's still got a good, however, I mean, however long he wants to keep making movies, but at least to Look, some, Marty's 80, and he's still. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> and if this is where, if this is the beginning of late-stage Fincher, uh, I'm all here for it and yeah. give me more. And, and I think it only is going to lead to um, even better, sharper uh, pictures, as Marty would say, in the future. Um, well, let's talk a bit more about... Uh, you know, his reputation, as we've already alluded to, David Fincher, the nihilist. Uh, I know Dalton's got something to say about that, but I, I want to point this out because in 2019, we got Gone Girl before he released Mank six years later in 2020. Again, we've already talked about much different fare. And the killer brings us back to this sort of throwback. Uh, again, I think Panic Room, I, I, you know, the game's a good one. Uh, I haven't watched that one in a while, but that is a really fun movie. Um, in an interview with The Guardian, Fincher said that he thinks of uh, this movie the killer like a good B movie and said, I just didn't want to take it quite as seriously. Uh, so I, I just want to, as we think about Fincher shifting into the kind of the next phase of his career, uh, what do you think he does best? And how do you think that the killer really reflects more of a kind of a marriage of his older styles and techniques along with sort of this newfound self-awareness and Lauren, I'll start with you. I think his his films are again it's that they're more self referential they're self more uh, more insightful because you know normally he's somewhat at a distance you know from the work like you can see the technical prowess but um, but he's like adding his personality into it now you know what I mean like you know his own his own thought process into it and that's just really fascinating to see because not you don't always get to see you know what I mean like the man behind them you know in 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 a lot of work you know some artists like you know like i mean people like tarantino like you know they have their own signature like where it's like this is me like we get like his per we feel like we know him through his movies and i feel like um fincher's films are always more you know about the again like the process and the 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 actual craft of it but here we're getting like you know the artist you know his own his own you know uh, what he thinks, how, his philosophies, his life, his, 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 you know, and I think that's a very interesting thing to be able to. He's using how cold his movies feel as an advantage. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like mm -hmm. it's part of the, again, the cognitive dissonance that you talked about Paris. Mm -hmm. Like that is, uh, a yeah. he utilizes that in this movie. Yeah. Oh, you don't feel like you know me because these are mm -hmm. all cold, yeah. I mean, dark, 
But now we're going to make that the joke. We're going to make and that then, the joke. And that's yeah. the personality shining through well, in a new way. I think you're right, Leron, that like, it's only with 12 movies of history to look back on that you go, oh, this there's like a lot of similar protagonists here. Mm-hmm, and you're mm-hmm. like, oh, okay. Like you realize like there's there's a lot more of the guy in the work than maybe you would have mm-hmm. first realized because it is also kind of cold. Mm-hmm. And detached, uh, yeah. Yeah, but you know, then there's also the open-hearted sentimentality of Benjamin Button, which, yeah, it's like this really kind of dark death meditation, but it is a romance as much as it is anything else. Yeah. It's so. a very sweet movie. Yeah, I love uh, that yeah. movie. I, I know a lot of people are, are kind of out on that one as and see it as like, Oh, the weird, the, the, the unfincher fincher movie. But I think that his, his shit is all over that. Oh, movie. absolutely. I think him and Eric Roth like came together to, I think that as much as, as social network, it's like him working with like a really high level screenwriter and taking their, their sort of their sensibilities and merging them in a really interesting way. It's, it's unlike, you know, him and Andrew Kevin Walker seem like kind of similar dudes, mm-hmm. whereas him and Roth and him and Sorkin like seem way, way different. Oh, and yeah. so it's kind of an interesting mesh of sensibilities. Yeah. You would think uh, the perfectionism between him and Sorkin would cla- the I just cla- love the picturing him just like okay. drawing lines through Sorkin's screenplay. Like Aaron, are you kidding me? <laughs> Nobody would say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, uh, Paris, what do you make of uh, sort of this evolution of Fincher style we see here? Yeah, it's really interesting because I mean I've been a fan of Fincher, but it's really upon these recent rewatches um, of his older movies that I'm like seeing all of the thematic elements that come together because I think really at the heart of the vast majority of his movies is looking at human nature, which in itself, in and of itself is not groundbreaking. I think cinema in general, like that's the number one thing that we're looking at in most movies is human nature. But really he is approaching that in his own unique way in that, I mean, I think of like, so Gone Girl, for example, so much of the movie is not knowing what's real, what's not, what's being presented to you, what's being, you know, fabricated, uh, who's a good person, who's not a good person. Like, because you go through this back and forth of like Ben Affleck's character, for example, like, is he a wife murderer? Is he an innocent guy who's being framed? And there's literally within minutes of each other, you go back and forth because you're like, oh, well, maybe he's not so bad. And then it's like, oh, he's cheating on his wife. So maybe he isn't as good as I thought he was. Like, that's the whole thing that's happening in a lot of his movies is what makes someone a good person? What makes someone a bad person? Is there such a thing as because ultimately what he concludes is we're all complicated. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> you know, um, so I think I that's still happening here because He's just taking it a little further of like looking at, well, is someone being good at their job what makes them worthwhile as a person? Right. Because like what if he is the best assassin in the world? Does that make him any better than anyone else? Like I think he's just really questioning like he and also um I think the biggest thing for him too is he is anti-establishment in many of his works. Yeah. Um I mean he himself is someone who didn't go to film school. Right. Um he's never won an Oscar. Uh he's you know he he's doing like these fancy photo shoots for these fancy publications in sandals. Um like and then his movies reflect just like this anti-establishment attitude. Um 
you you are looking at Gone Girl, which is um, looking at the establishment of marriage. Uh, you have, you know, Zodiac and uh, uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo looking at law and crime and our justice system. And it's not to say that he really veers one way or another of these like, yes, this is bad. Like, it's not like Gone Girl is saying, oh, marriage is bad, but it's looking at all the performance of it, mm-hmm. the capitalism of it, the all all of the it's looking at as an institution as an establishment and so i think he's doing that again like in the killer he's looking at um you know i mean he's looking at an assassin which is a very real portrayal of what an assassin in today's day and age would look like with all the technology um but he's comparing that to craft and artistry mm-hmm. and how valuable is that stuff? Can you be a crappy person and a good artist? Right. And that makes up for it. Like he's just really, really examining um, the same the same themes he has been examining, I think, his entire career. Yeah, I like how you're, you're reframing it as uh, you're, he's turning these kind of ideas and uh aspects of human nature and turning them into an institution that he's then kind of really diving into, uh, especially when you think about profession, you know, mm-hmm. you recommended the professional earlier. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you take it, uh, yeah, it's artist, but you could apply the same thing. Is you being exceptional at your job, make you an exceptional person? Well, he, there's like this interesting line draw between the killer and Fincher and DoorDash, right? Like he's just he's a he's a gig economy worker just like mm-hmm. anybody else. He right. is servicing this billionaire. At the end of the day, it is like about what this billionaire wants and what he's financing and who works for him. And like it is kind of this interesting like if yes, it's the DoorDash that like lets him slip past building security, but there's this sort of this interesting like he's also an employee of this billionaire and he's just right. he's just has the means to come confront the billionaire and say like do we have a problem? Uh, it's, I don't know. I thought I, that, that was a, a moment in the film that I was like, Oh, what are we? Okay. It's like <laughs> kind of a cute, silly flourish. That's hiding right there in the, in that final section. DoorDash drivers are just assassins. I mean, yeah. Come on. <laughs> I mean, yeah. He's like, who needs a Trojan horse when you have Postmates? Yeah, that's and he, I mean, it's obviously like, uh, I think it's very obvious that this is examining capitalism. Yes. I mean, yeah, the he, Amazon lockers are there too. He's all of yeah. his tools off of Amazon. Um, it, it enables you to be anonymous mm. and many ways like he's mcdonald's sandwich yeah and and so much of that too is like you don't know if he's actually eating the mcdonald's because he wants to or if he's just it's part of his image like Mm. he's just trying to blend in as a german tourist and like i think a lot of this movie is like what is he really doing because he feels obligated through his job and what is he choosing to do go again going back to that that monologue that tilda gives is like how much of this is because you feel like you have to do it and how much of it is because you're actively choosing to do it yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's well said examining the idea of uh profession i think is uh i hadn't considered the film in that light but it's similar marriage justice system here profession um especially when you think about a lot of the uh themes that have been really popular in that workers world about gig economy burnout fatigue you know top performing all that like there's he's a lot there's in, a lot of things that that are top of mind that he's hitting on when you look at it through that lens isn't an abandoned we work space yes yeah. yeah i mean come on yeah and i love the stripped down like aspect of it you kind of mentioned it with the with eating mcdonald's and um he flies coach mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. what i mean like i mean like if you if you look at this like typical assassin movies they're normally like 
amping up the the you know what I mean the uh yeah the kind of like the gross spending of like he's globe trotting and he's how he, sexy it is to be it's, in a sense. people have yeah uh, the anti James Bond anti James yeah. Bond yeah he's yeah he's wearing like very like you know, modest His clothing bucket hat so bucket funny. yeah exactly <laughs> it's like drives a, an electric moped like, yeah that's his assassin's ride yeah, yeah. And it's very just, it's almost like he's just weirdly making him even more relatable to the yeah. common man like popping like, his how hard, different are we his know? hard boiled gas station eggs yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just like yeah that's he's just trying to get cheap protein to stay fueled. Mm -hmm. It's on the move. I'm like yeah. everybody else, guys. Yeah, yeah that's what brings it back, though. Is he is he an exceptional person? And uh, the end conclusion he has is, nope, I'm just like everyone else. I just happen to be good at killing people. Yep. But once again, just another cog in the machine of capitalism. Uh, hey, well, I want to hit on one more thing before we wrap up here. Uh, I promised I would keep this one shorter than our last episode, so we'll keep it brief. Um, So... I don't know. Maybe, and, and you guys let me know. We, this might be another podcast. I, I do think Fincher has an, an especially complex legacy um, given the types of subjects he's tackled, most specifically Fight Club. So he is, I would say, arguably one of the most influential directors among millennials and Gen X. Uh, for better or for worse, his films have ingrained themselves in our pop culture lexicon. And we've already acknowledged this a couple times. He's known for telling stories about outsiders. When you look at his full body of work, you get the social network, you get Zodiac, you get Seven. Um, but perhaps his most influential film is the his cult hit turned cultural touchstone Fight Club, and that is a film that really tapped into the zeitgeist uh, zeitgeist among white males. Uh, Dalton and myself already talking earlier about how we are uh, part of that group that felt you know is very targeted by that that film in particular. Uh, in a recent interview with The Guardian that I've already cited, uh, Fincher disavowed the connection between his work and groups like the Proud Boys, who've used Tyler Durden's philosophy as something of a, a rallying cry. Uh, Fincher said, I'm not responsible for how people interpret things, and continued with, we didn't make it for them, but people will see what they're going to see in Norman Rockwell painting or Picasso's uh, works. Lastly, he concluded that he thought by saying, it's impossible for me to imagine that people don't understand that Tyler Durden is a negative influence. He says, people who can't understand that, I don't know how to respond and I don't know how to help them. How does, what does this have to do with the killer? Well, the killer is about killing, is about an outsider guy going in and killing people. And again, we talk cinematically. One of the more interesting things about the film is how, he does the job, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that first like 20 minutes, you're just like leaning in all, all these little weird things he's doing to set up the, the, the shot. Uh, I'm just curious if we want to dig into this at all, like how does the killer continue this examination of the outsider that Fincher has explored throughout his career? And I'd, I'd add on to that. Do we think that this movie makes it clear that Michael Fassbender is not a role model? Uh, yeah, yeah I, I feel like what he's essentially getting at is like, yeah, I know I've, I've created these a lot of despicable characters for you all to like relish and delight in. But um, but it's he's not glorifying any of these people. Mm -hmm. I don't think in any of these movies, I think they're they're missing the fact that these are a social critique of these characters and and the psychology of these characters and the psychology of the institutions they're part of. And I think that. Um, this this more than any of them, you know what I mean, is commenting on that, you know, in a way. Because um, I think Martin Scorsese does the same thing. People always say, like, he's made a lot of gangster pictures and maybe he just loves violence. But I don't think he's ever glorified any of these characters. Like, you watch Killers, we're not supposed to like Leo. We're not supposed to like, um, you know, um, um, 
Robert De Niro's character. He is fascinated in how casually, you know, this kind of evil, sadistic, sinister agenda, you know, can just systemically be, you know, implemented, you know, by people who just turn an eye to it, you know, like, but, you know, but it's definitely not, um, uh, he's definitely not, you know what I mean, a part of, you know what I mean? In, well, yeah, well, for Wall Street, he's definitely critiquing the, yeah, the, the wealth outrageous and wealth yeah. and greed. Yeah, even, yeah, you sure. know, even if it looks sexy sometimes, it's like, yeah, but like these guys all went to prison and they, they ruined lots of right. people's lives. He's fascinated by people who are so, like, you know, steeped in this to the point and getting away with this and able to, you know, like, how does it continue to thrive and continue to be a part of our society? You know what I mean? As opposed to like saying like, oh, yeah, look how cool these people are and look how they got away. And with similar to, to Fincher's work, though, in Fight Club, he's not saying, oh, yeah, Tyler, Bur- blowing up banks. That's that's actually a good answer to our problems. He's right. not saying that. He's saying, isn't that crazy that yeah. people would think that's the, right. the right. And if you don't know the difference, if you can't if you can't see right from wrong here and who's who and what the point of this is, then that says a lot more about you than it says about David Fincher. You know, well, and question I have for Dalton or in Paris, like, do you think Fincher's doing a good job at drawing that distinction? Do you think it's on the audience or do you think it's on the director? I think so in that Guardian article you're talking about, you sent it over to me and there's he ends really interestingly by sort of comparing himself to Burton uh, and talks about how, you know, in Tim Burton's work, especially Edward Scissorhands, Edward is an anomaly. He's the only outsider. Right. And I, I love that Fincher identifies that in his work, or at least the way he sees the world, he sees that everybody thinks of themselves as an outsider. <clears throat> everybody feels alienated from the system in some way. And for my money, that's that's what I think makes Fincher much more interesting than somebody like Burton. Like Burton can't. Burton's never really gr- grown up in some ways. You know, he's still the art school kid who's mad at his dad. Uh, which, <laughs> yeah. Hey, buddy, I get it. Tell me about it. Uh, but at the same time, like he he can't see far enough out in front of his face to see that everybody feels the same way that he does. And yeah. I think that's what's so interesting about Fincher's work is that everybody in these movies, especially Gone Girl, is a great example. I think Nick and Amy like hate each other but they can't (laughs) identify that they they are responsible for that like the two of them like feeling alienated from everything and not being able to like come to they're both just like very damaged people and uh, are uh you know you could argue about who is more damaged in that movie but i think that 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 film's a great example of like two people who see themselves as outsiders like coming into collision with one another Mm -hmm. in a really interesting way uh so yeah i you know that's that's on us as a society uh, to be media literate. That's on us as people who talk about media to encourage media literacy. Uh, you know, that's that is the end goal is to have conversations about the art that we're all consuming. Uh, so we can identify like what is an outsider, who is one and what what is the value of exploring that idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and who is the person? What what is the person making the movie's perspective on this? And what are they trying to communicate through the film? They have they have yeah. their own perspective as a director you know well and then and then how how much do we give to them right mm-hmm. and, and how much do we say now it's out in the world and now we have to decide right. like what the impact of it is absolutely paris anything you want to add yeah i mean i think it's complicated i don't agree with the sentiment that fincher is to blame but i don't agree that he's blameless um I think to that point of like Nick and Amy and Gone Girl, I think what it is is they feel trapped by a system. Mm, Like they're mm. trapped. Mm. And just like most of 
his characters are in some way trapped by some system, you know, very much so. In The Killer, I think he feels trapped. Like, he feels like he doesn't really have a choice. Like, this is just what he has to do. And, I mean, they're all different systems, but really what I think, it comes back to that. And, um, you know, the uh, Fight Club is talking about the system of, like, capitalism and toxic masculinity and, like, how men are trapped by these very systems that keep them from expressing their anger, from mm-hmm. getting out those emotions. And they have to go and do something like a Fight Club because the system is not working for them. Right. Um And I think what it really all boils down to is, I mean, the fact of the matter is when you make something like Fight Club, right, no matter what your intention is, if you have this mass of an audience misinterpreting your film, that is partly on you. Mm. However, we live in a society where part, of the society is disgusted by billionaires and another part of the society admires them. So, you know, there are people who love Trump. There are people who admire him. And then there are people who are disgusted and hate, hated, hate him. So we're all presented with this information. We're all going to do what we do with it. So I think that's an important part is there's always going to be people who are influenced in the wrong way. Mm. Um, but I don't think that he can just be like, oh, well, it's not my problem. Well, yeah, it is. You're the one making the movie. Right. Um, I will say, though, look how many conversations he has caused through just Fight Club alone. Mm-hmm. We're talking about it. It's become a, a, a very common thing to talk about when we're talking about that movie. When Breaking we're all about, the rules. Yeah, when we're talking about toxic masculinity, like... What whatever your thoughts are, your reaction to that movie is it's brought that conversation. And can you think of another movie that has caused this much discussion about toxic masculinity and all of these things? I think that's valuable because right. maybe we do need those movies that do um, cause that much of a rift so that we can talk about them. Um, I think that's valuable. I think yeah. you've hit on something like so Gen X about him is that like kind of being above it all and being like, no, man, no, I'm too cool for that. It's like, no, you're not. Right. You made Fight Club. You made <laughs> Mank. Like, you were clearly a politically interested person. Right. And it's, yeah. you have to, like, tip your hand a little bit at some I'm not point. A, I'm not a sellout, but I'm also going to go hype up Netflix. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and, like, and as much as I, I totally agree, like, in some ways with this comparison to Tim Burton, like, my guy, you're still comparing yourself to other directors. Right. Mm. Like, who's to say that Tim Burton doesn't feel the same way you do sure you're not the one who knows how he feels or Mm -hmm. like that's your interpretation of the movie but other people can watch it and feel completely different so there's still some immaturity i think going on there but that's what the point is is like we're all human none of us are perfect you know yeah Yeah. you know it's funny in that same interview i think it opens it towards the top he says i'm just i've never grown up i'm still the six-year-old who fell in love with movies Mm -hmm. but i'm like Dude, yes, but also no, because you're hyper obsessive about getting the right shot and all these complicated themes that you've you've talked about you couldn't tackle as a six year old. But there's still that like weird sense of like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? He just, I think he just thinks that people are going to do the right thing. You know what I mean? I don't know. The, yeah, I get what you, I get what you say that. I mean, especially, you know. Dragon Tattoo and and Gone Girl, I know, are, are easy to look at because they're just kind of towards the end of the, the or the more recent works in the filmography. But those are both like 
trashy, lurid stories that are way about stuff. Oh yeah. In a like kind of obtuse way, but like are very much about like gender and systems. As you've said, Paris, like uh, so many of the works are, but like those two movies especially are very much about like the relationships between men and women and how those are kind of fraught for reasons that no individual has anything to do with. But because of just the nature of human history and society, like there, there is baggage in those systems and those relationships. Well, I think the big, my biggest thing I wanted to add to what you all have put out there. I tend to, I think Paris, what you said really resonated with me. It's not his fault, but that doesn't make him blameless. Mm -hmm. And I think we're in a really weird time for media. I used to think that it was a hundred percent on people and mm -hmm. we won't get into the, to the politics of all, but 2016 really eye-opening. Like, no, if you don't shout the point of the thing at some people, they really won't get yeah. it. And I don't like that that's the reality because what it speaks to is just a lack of media literacy that yeah. we that is pretty prominent in our culture. And it's okay to have differences of opinions and different views, as you say, with different information. But there's a lot. There's there's certain certain a certain section of the population is equipped to like understand nuance and know how to like really ask the questions and talk about it like we're doing here or amongst their friends and there's some who will just take it at face value and say ah oh, wasn't that Tyler Durden was pretty cool right wasn't that wild he right. rode the tricycle you know what I mean like oh they he he, he showed him who's boss he blew up the banks like, and when you, you know and when you and this one of those things where when you know better you do better you know sort of things like in, when you become enlightened to certain things you know we all evolve but there's times like we said like we well, there's certain things we love. One of my favorite movies of all time is American Beauty, but it's very problematic in 2020, 23. So I, I'm, I'm, I can say, you know, without a doubt now that that movie has a lot of um, uh, sociological issues, you know what I mean? Like in terms of, you know, where we stand today, I can't champion some of the themes in that movie anymore because they, they are now harmful to society. I know, but I know that now because I wasn't, I, I mean, obviously I wasn't in that same headspace, but it's definitely, like you said, like, like when we become more empathetic, when you hear it's not enough to say, well, I, I don't have anything to do with that. It was like, well, you have to denounce it, though, and say that, hey, like this is what I meant. What by movie this. you make next tells me a lot about how you're thinking about exactly. that movie you made 20 years ago. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You can't just dismiss it and say like, oh, no, 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 it, it, none of that was there. Well, someone's speaking to it. It's, it's the same way. Like you said, Trump's a, a perfect example where it's one of those things where it's like, well, I don't support this and that. I was like, well, you need to say that unequivocally. You can't just be like. You can't, you know, be blase about, oh, you know, an insurrection. You know, it's like, like so, yeah. So. Well, Fincher himself is in a system, and he mm, is very yeah. much so trapped within the yeah. movie industry and what you, you can't just make whatever movie you want. Even a person like Fincher, even a, a person like Scorsese, like the most powerful players in the game still are trapped within a system. Right. You still have to worry about the money and mm -hmm. all of that. That's, um, that's what like, do we have a problem, Mr. Claiborne? That's what that all feels about, right? Mm -hmm. Like it is very much like, yeah, I've got a boss and it sucks. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like Fincher is not just like this guy who gets to do whatever he wants. Mm -hmm. He is very much so. And like movie making, filmmaking, all of that is a capitalistic system. It is there to make money and make other people rich. And yes, there's a lot of artistic integrity there, of course, but it's just, it wouldn't exist if it wasn't making people money like Absolutely. you know yeah. so i think he's trapped himself um but back to like you brought up like his viewpoint on humans like i think he's pro-human and think he is too. yeah mm -hmm. i think he's very pro-human yeah and it's all about like we are limited as humans for our circumstances and um 
yeah, I, I just, I see a lot of that coming through with this especially, but even back to, um, like you said, it's easier to look at his uh, later works because that comes through very clearly. But I would say, look, I just recently watched Alien 3. Mm-hmm. And that movie, you know, I was thinking, okay, well, what, someone who's done music videos and like all of that kind of stuff his whole career, and then now he decides to do a feature, like why was it Alien 3? Well, to me, it still is, it's dealing with the same themes that he has dealt with in all of his movies for the most part. This is a woman who is trapped on a, like, spacecraft that is a prison of all men. Like, Mm -hmm. so you're talking about the justice system. Mm -hmm. You're talking about gender. Like, from the very beginning, the looming question is, is she going to get sexually assaulted? Like, is that going to happen? And what's going to happen if that happens? Like, you know, and it's, she's powerless in many ways. And I think it's examining those same things, um, even in a movie like Alien 3. um, You know, I just... It's it's developed over, but I think that's always what he's been interested in. It's just so right, like dude. the average per just everyday people, like even if they're extraordinary at things, they're still just humans. Right. Like mm-hmm. the, yeah, and and we were talking about too like the nihilism in like Killers of the Flower Moon. Like I think that's much more anti human. Like look at all these terrible things humans do and it it's not to say that there isn't positive messages there, but it it's very much so a different approach of just like a different thesis. Yeah, yeah very mm-hmm. different thesis. Well, whereas I think he, you know, we, we again calling him the nihilist. His movies tend to be really down on a lot of things, systems in particular. But then at the day, when you're looking at the, the the human characters, I really do think he believes that human, the human, um, what's the word? Humans will triumph. Yeah. In one way or another, it might be they might be broken. That's where that earnestness and sincerity that we keep right. talking about well, comes from. So how's Fight Club in right? This was this was getting me gassed up while Paris was talking about Alien Three and how this stuff is like early in the filmography. Fight Club ends with a dude blowing the side of his face out because his imaginary best friend is too toxic to be around. And who does he end up embracing at the end of the movie? The person who is also like getting their emotional catharsis by crying. By, by doing the quote-unquote feminine thing mm-hmm. of, like, having, a, you know, an emotional release in that way. Yeah. As opposed to, like, having it through violent catharsis. Like, mm-hmm. it is all about, like, embracing the thing that was actually working as opposed to the thing that is, like, speaking to what you're supposed to want. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's all there. It's mm-hmm. it's definitely throughout the filmography. And I, I think, th- thank you, uh, Laurent, for, yeah, bringing the sincerity up again. Because I, th- I do think it is, you know, people miss it i think very often and i think it, it only becomes obvious when you have this much work to look at but yeah, yeah it's uh, yeah I, I, the cynicism is there for sure right but, but so is but because so is the belief uh, yeah. so is the belief that i think like humanity will triumph no matter how beaten battered or broken yeah. at least it's a it's a belief in that yeah. core, i think yeah i think nihilism unjustly gets categorized as a negative thing like nihilism really is just looking at how meaningless and pointless these things are, but that doesn't have to be negative. Like what I interpret, like I think the, the killer is extremely nihilist. It's not necessarily negative, but it's saying, you know, look how meaningless all of this is. Like it's a guy who he could be, 
doing anything else during this time. Like, he, he does not have to be doing this. Mm-hmm. It's ultimately meaningless what he's doing. But then at the end, it's like, it's okay. That is, like, isn't it kind of comforting how meaningless life is? The all it doesn't wants- have to be a bad thing that life is meaningless. Yeah. It kind of takes the pressure off of us as humans. He just wants to sip lattes by on the beach with his partner yeah. and feel safe. Yeah. That's what so he wants. So I think that yeah. it's like, oh, it's really nihilist, but it's kind of a positive look at nihilism. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it doesn't have to be this depressing thing like, oh, like being a human or life or what we do is meaningless, which can be negative if you look at it that way, or you can be like, oh, well, that's actually kind of nice because I don't have to stress about it as much. Mm-hmm. Well, everything's not so important. We certainly <laughs> in this ca- hyper-capitalist society love to stress out about literally everything. So, you know, yeah. there's something to be said about that. Paris, I'm getting a T-shirt. and It's going to say pro-nihilism now. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that said, ladies and gentlemen, I think we are about out of time. Uh, hey, we had an amazing panel today. I'm going to go around the table and let everyone share where they can follow their work at. Dalton Stewart, we'll start with you. Yeah, you can find me every single week over on the Good Trash Genre Cast talking about the films you would never discuss in a film studies course, but we try to do it in a film studies type way. Uh, new episodes come out on Fridays, generally speaking. Uh, you can find me all over the internet at Dollywood Squares, except on Letterboxd, where I'm, where I'm Dollywood Squares. There's no A. They've got character limits over mm-hmm. there. So, you know, drop the A if you want to see what I'm watching. Um, coming soon, um, I'm going to be starting a weekly show at uh, the, the uh, Film Row uh, Rodeo Cinema. Uh, we don't have dates locked in yet or movies locked in yet, but uh, myself and Alex Sanchez, an actor, a stand-up comedian here in town, uh, once named Oklahoma City's Funniest Person, one, once upon a time, uh, he and I are going to be hosting a, a show called Down in Front, uh, where we do a, a movie interruption, you know, like a Doug Benson movie interruption or Master Pancake uh, Theater. Uh, we're going to do that kind of thing with public domain movies. Uh, our first one, we're hoping to do it on November 30th. So again, that's the Film Row location for Rodeo Cinema here in Oklahoma City, right off of Sheridan. Uh, come come hang out with us. November 30th uh, is, is, again, slated to be our first one. Uh, but find me uh, probably on Insta at Dollywood Squares to get more updates on like when and where and what we'll be covering and all that good stuff. Uh, but in the meantime, if you want to see me and Alex, uh, Alex hosts uh, the Mixed Media uh, Public Access Open Mic, also at Film Row, uh, the Rodeo Cinema Film Row location. And that is every Sunday. So if you have a talent, whether it's magic or juggling or music or comedy uh, or film criticism, <laughs> come hang out uh, at uh, Public Access. Sign up is at 6. Show starts at 6.30. We're all in bed by 9 on a school night. It's perfect. Uh, so, you know, in the meantime, come check out public access. I'm usually hanging out with Alex over there on Sundays. Uh, and then again, Thursday, the 30th of November should be our first, uh, down in front. Uh, so lots of cool stuff going on over at uh, rodeo cinema. Stay, stay tuned, man. That's what a thanks rodeo cinema for bringing the repertory experience to Oklahoma city. Uh, is what I'll say. Love, love to, to heap some praise on the uh, that specific location. It's historic and uh, the formerly known Paramount building. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, for those of you who aren't local or local and don't know, it's called Film Row because that, that was like our, our film interchange area in, back in the day. That was where all the, the reels and reels and canisters of film would go. And yeah, it was, it was a whole booming industry in that part of Oklahoma City uh, once upon a time. And now public access. Yeah, that's right. Dalton Stewart, thanks so much for joining us, sir. Thank you, Caleb. Paris Burris, where can people follow you and uh, all the things you're doing? 
really, um, the only place online that I'm active is Letterboxd. I'm not really on any other type of social media these days. Um, but I would also say uh, I'm a programmer for Dead Center. And not only do we have a film festival in June each year, but we are doing a bunch of uh, programming throughout the year uh, as part of our Continuum series. So uh, definitely go check out our social media, sign up for our newsletter so you can keep up to date on all of the cool local free screenings that we'll be doing throughout the year and next year. Awesome. Social, this Dead Center on social media or deadcenterfilm.org. Leron Chapman. Uh, I echo all the Dead Center um, uh, plugs there. Um, also a programmer there uh, for Dead Center. Um, but if you want to follow my um, film critiques, uh, you can follow me on Letterboxd as well at black underscore in a cinna underscore man. Awesome. And uh, again, you can follow me on, uh, I guess, mostly Letterboxd and Instagram, Seamasters Talk. I guess I still have an X on that. Let's Seamasters Talk. You can follow me there. Um, uh, or just head on over to the cinematropolis.com. Uh, you know, we're, we're cranking stuff out. Daniel Bokemper had a great piece on a uh, little uh, an out character analysis on killers of the flower moon, have some other exciting stuff in the pipeline coming soon. So check it out there. Cinematropolis.com. Hey, Laron Paris Dalton. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much. Caleb. We killed it. and thank you listeners for tuning in today join us next time when we catch up after the american thanksgiving holiday with a bit of a feast where laron and i and some other special guests will discuss the plethora of movies that we watched over the holiday season 